Codex. Codex. Welcome to Omen Revelations podcast, the flagship show of the Omen Comics for a podcast network. I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers, and with me is my partner in crime, uh, Mike Nunnally, and we're here to discuss topics relating to writing, pop culture, and a whole lot more. For uh, today's episode, though, um, Mike and I are going to tackle a book that I have a great respect for, but it's also probably the most complex work we've tackled on this show to date, which for us is saying something, given with the kinds of deep dives that we do. <laughs> anyway, um, that work is the landmark 1985 uh, graphic novel Watchmen, uh, written by the great Alan Moore and the legendary Dave Gibbons. So uh, what was your first exposure to Watchmen, Mike? Uh, when did you first read it, and did you have any opening thoughts before we dive in? Um, I did not read Watchmen until after I had seen the movie. Um, in fact, <laughs> I had never even heard of it until the movie. I, I don't remember seeing it at any of the local comic shops I went to, uh, but I know that, that, that the comic was popular uh, when it came out, so I'm assuming that the shops had it. Um, maybe maybe it was just I was interested in buying the comics uh, about the heroes that I was already familiar with and, and maybe just overlooked it. I, I don't know. Uh, but when the movie came out, um, I was surprised that there was a comic book movie in, uh, about heroes I had never even heard of. I ultimately had to see what everyone was talking about. And uh, about 2019, 2020, right around in there, I read it for the first time. Um, as for first impressions go, I, I liked it, but it was not necessarily as awesome as everyone was saying that it was. Um, I also I also really hated the five pages of prose at the end of every issue. Uh, but that is because of as my analytical brain uh, did not have a chance to kick in with it. Um, in order to prepare for this episode, I read it two more times, and, and now I can see what everyone was talking about. Uh, this book has a lot of layers and that, that are not just really obvious necessarily on the initial read. Uh, but what about you, Steve? Uh, how did you first get into Watchmen? It, it is definitely true um, that this is a book that takes like a couple of times to really kind of get a, a feel for it. So I totally understand that. Um, but, um, you know, I don't have an exact recollection of when I first discovered Watchmen, but I want to say it was in my high school years or so. Um, there was a period when I seriously got back into comics after a hiatus. Um, and I was trying to find out all the big releases at the time. So I discovered things like, you know, The Dark Knight Returns or Cerebus, Sandman, those kinds of titles. And somewhere in the middle of that, I read Watchmen. And I have to admit that I wasn't yet sophisticated enough to fully understand it at that time, as much like you were. Uh, over the years, I reread it from time to time, and I'd always discover something new in it. And that, to me, is a sign of work with real depth. Of course, I had to read everything else that Moore had written after that, which led to a long hunt over the course of years, but I digress. I also add that Watchmen played a role in my time uh, as an academic. Uh, in my last year of uh, undergraduate study, I decided to do an essay on Watchmen for a class assignment on literary theory. A at the time, everyone said that Watchmen was a deconstruction of the superhero, but nobody ever asked what it was deconstructing or how. It just, it just was not part of the conversation. So I actually wrote an essay on that, and I'll share bits of what I can remember about it with you all as uh, we discuss the series. Um, but for those curious, the essay won third place in my school's writing awards for that year for the Watchmen essay. Wow. So if you want to know how well it did, it was a pretty deep dive. 
<laughs> that's impressive uh third place considering uh yeah. i mean the the type of the type of essays that were probably submitted that that's yep. impressive i yep. like that um and and actually based on the things we've talked about already outside of the show i am pretty certain that we are about to do another pretty deep dive into the 12 issue series of Watchmen. uh so why don't we dive into this as we have a lot to discuss indeed we do uh, before we continue, I want to talk about how Watchmen is a deconstructive work and what deconstruction actually is in terms of literary theory. When most people talk about it today, it's usually in the sense of breaking down literary heroes or making the story grim, darker, edgier. And that can often be the case in deconstructionist works, though deconstructionism isn't specifically about that. Um, the misunderstanding about this comes from how complex and confusing the theory itself is. So one can be forgiven for misinterpreting what it actually is. Deconstructionism is actually rooted in postmodern French philosophy and specifically in the works of Jacques Derrida. The, the idea of deconstructionism is about questioning the underpinnings of a work of fiction until it breaks. Uh, Derrida believed that if you question the work enough, you'd reach a point where the narrative becomes contradictory and meaningless. There is a fair amount of nihilism in Derrida's point of view, as you might imagine. Um, note that I am greatly simplifying the idea because otherwise we will be here for hours. <laughs> Um, but the reason that this theory is synonymous with the degradation of fictional heroes is because, in part, uh, Watchmen is such a famous example of it. Moore is being deconstructionist in the way that Derrida intended it. He was extremely well-read, and he understood the theory quite well. Um, what Moore is doing is questioning the archetypes and the purpose that they serve in the superhero narrative. The comedian even embodies this idea a bit. He sees what doesn't work about superheroes, see what they do is meaningless, and he treats it all as a joke. But what Moore's successor saw wasn't the deeper questions about the genre or how it works, but the surface trapping of edgy, grim, dark storytelling. So deconstructionism became identified with those darker character takes and story elements, even in stories that are not actively exploring the theory itself, which is many of them. Uh, this is a point that I think that we should keep in the back of our minds as we talk about the book. You know, if, if I understand what you're saying correctly, uh, Moore deconstructed heroes by having characters like like Hollis Mason and Daniel Dryberg, uh, the, the Night Owls, uh, talk about some of the absurdity of it all, uh, especially when it came to putting on costumes. Uh, both of them were embarrassed to dress up and fight crime and, and really only did so because other people were doing it first, um, especially because villains were doing it. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. it took hooded justice of uh, putting on a costume and fighting crime to even get the ball rolling. Um, it was ridiculous to everyone until one man made it cool. A and then uh, a few more made it a fad. Uh, in other words, more deconstructed it by asking, why would anyone in their right mind put on a silly costume and fight bad guys? Uh, there are many examples I could think of, but I'm sure you will get into them. Am, am, I, am I understanding what, what you're showing us about deconstructionism? Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. And those scenes that you cited are good examples of deconstructionism in the literary sense. All of those scenes that show the silliness inherent in the genre and how they don't work in a realistic context are very deconstructionist. But moving on, uh, there's, a, there's one thing that I want to get out of the way before we dive into the story itself. Um, the main characters were all loosely based on the Silver Age Charlton heroes. Uh, Captain Adam, the Ted Cord version of Blue Beetle, The Question, The Peacemaker, uh, Pete Cannon, Thunderbolt, and Nightshade. In fact, there was a draft that Moore had in mind where he wanted to do a revamp of the Charlton characters, which ended up involving into Watchmen. Oh, and as an aside, they've actually brought the Watchmen ideas back into the Charlton characters at various times, 
including uh, Grant Morrison's Pax Americana, and which I recommend highly. Anyway, um, DC had gotten the rights to the Charlton characters in 1983, and they wanted to do something with them. At the same time, uh, Moore had an idea that he wanted to explore, which ended up becoming Watchmen. He just hadn't worked out which characters to use for that story. He initially wanted to use recognizable characters um, for it, thinking that it would be more of a shock that way. So there were talks about using the MLJ heroes, um, which eventually would become part of Archie Comics stable. Uh, one idea that Moore had that is that it would start with the death of the S.H.I.E.L.D., who was a patriotic hero um, that was out of MLJ. That idea was rejected. And then the Charlton heroes were considered, even using the tagline of, who killed the peacemaker? But after a while, DC rightly recognized that no matter what characters they used, Watchmen would leave those characters either dead or broken. And if you look <laughs> at the ending of the story, they, that's true. That would have happened. Um, as I recall, though, it was DC's managing editor, uh, Dick uh, Giordano, that suggested that Moore and Gibbons created their own versions of the characters set in their own universe. Moore uh, resisted at first, thinking that the recognizability would give the story more impact. But then he reconsidered it, um, thinking that the name recognition wouldn't matter that much to the story as long as the characters felt recognizable. And that led him to creating the Watchmen characters that we know, modeling them after the Charlton heroes. So Captain Adam became Dr. Manhattan. Uh, Blue Beetle became Night Owl. Uh, the Question became Rorschach. Uh, Thunderbolt became Ozymandias. Uh, Peacemaker became the Comedian. And Nightshade became the Silk Spectre. Um, if you look at this character side by side, it becomes very apparent where the influences came from. But Moore also added layers of metaphor and started deconstructing what those archetypes were as well. Um, Dr. Manhattan is seemingly a god, but he's detached from humanity, and he often has very little real agency despite his awesome power. And we're going to be going back over this over and over. Um, Night Owl uh, became an overweight wash-up, and some of that character uh, even rubbed off on Ted Cord for a while. If you want to know why Blue Beetle was bad at one point. Um, Rorschach explored the idea that a real person who might act as an urban crime fighter would be as damaged as broken as Walter Kovacs is. Uh, Silk Spectre was an exploration of how women were written into comics under the mid-80s. And Ozymandias, I think it's better to save that until we talk about the comic's massive end twist. But you get the idea of what Moore was aiming for there. Um, anyway, by the time that Moore and Gibbons were done with them, they didn't resemble the Charlton heroes at all anymore, except for very surface elements. If you're going to do a, a universe of, about analogs of mainstream big two heroes, this is the way to do it. But let's get into the series and try to dissect everything that's going on. So it would seem that all of them were deconstructed really in different ways. Uh, but let me make sure I'm grasping the concept of what deconstructionism and writing is. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm understanding you correctly, then the idea is to question how and why something is by a kind of reductio ad absurdum. Uh, you, you break it down into smaller parts and dissect it. Then you put it back together in a reduced or exaggerated fashion with a hyper focus on certain aspects that reveal truths and contradictions about it. I will talk about Dr. Manhattan as a god later, uh, but Hollis Mason getting old and washed up is an examination of superheroes really never aging in comics. <laughs> For like 30 years, they're 27 years old. <laughs> Am I picking up on what you're putting down there, Professor? <laughs> I think you basically got it, but uh, the focus of deconstruction is how to show how the contradictions make the world and the story functionally meaningless. Um, that's the under underlying nihilism of Derrida and his entire approach. This is also a huge difference between deconstruction and another movement that I'll be bringing up later. But first, let's dive into Watchmen itself. So let's get into the opening of the series. 
Watchmen is framed as a murder mystery and more very much follows the conventions of the classic murder mystery. You have a victim that any number of people would have a reason to want dead. You have the detective that stumbles upon the crime and is trying to solve it. You have a sordid group of people who all have skeletons in their closet in some way or another, aside from maybe Dryberg. The beauty here is that Moore adds superheroes and powers to that formula. You know, I did like the whole murder mystery among superheroes thing. It's it's one of the reasons I loved Identity Crisis. Uh, plus, that that first issue in particular had a very noir detective uh, kind of vibe, in large part because of Rorschach's journal. Um, there are parts that that feel like this too, but but none so much as as Watchmen number one. And I, and honestly, uh, that is why number one is really my favorite issue in the series. But but please do continue. Sure. It is a great opening to a detective story, and that is for sure. But without getting too much into the specifics yet, I, I like that Moore finds way to subvert even the mystery formula. The detective is an unreliable narrator who thinks he's the hero, and the detective is the one who pushes events that lead to the conclusion without even realizing that he's doing this. Um, that leads into the character of Rorschach, and I think that you had a point that you wanted to make about how he's established, Mike. I do, Steve, and I, I really like this scene. <laughs> in issue yeah. number one, Rorschach in his civilian clothes walks by those two homicide detectives that were leaving Edward Blake, uh, a.k.a. the comedian's apartment. Uh, when he does, one of the detectives gets a chill just walking by him. <laughs> that, that really says a lot about the presence he commands, even when he's not in his uniform. Yeah, this is true. I mean, Rorschach is a very charismatic character. I mean, he grabs your attention whenever he shows up, no question about it. So I can totally agree with that. At the same time, you definitely see that he's damaged just when you look at his real face. Uh, when, when he's looking out at you in that scene, that is a Kubrick-style thousand-yard stare that he's making, and it just looks eerie. But you also can't really look away from Rorschach either because he's just so compelling to watch. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. There, there, there does seem to be some degree of disconnect with Rorschach and I, I think it is born out of his hatred for the scum of humanity uh, but let's talk about the Keen Act here a bit as it leads into what I'm talking about here. Um, after the Vietnam War, the public grew a distaste for vigilantism in general and a distrust for costume heroes in part because of Rorschach's over-the-top brutality escalating to straight-up murder without due process. The straw that broke the camel's back was the police strike in New York in opposition to the vigilantes. Large-scale riots began because of the strike, and while the vigilantes did what they could, including a particularly violent incident with Night Owl and the Comedian, the costume heroes were still ultimately blamed for all that happened during those riots. It just so happens that Senator Keene had already written an act that would outlaw all vigilantism and force heroes to work for the government or retire. So after the riots, Congress had an emergency session and President Richard Nixon enacted the Keene Act in 1977. The only two heroes that chose to work for the government were Dr. Manhattan and the comedian. But Rorschach refused to comply with the Keene Act and became a wanted fugitive. Never compromise is a line that Rorschach comes back to quite a bit in the series. And I weirdly think it's the one aspect of Rorschach that makes him likable, even though he wasn't intended to be likable at all. Uh, but we'll get that into when we more deeply explore his character. Um, but to get to the backstory of how the Keen Act was passed, um, I, I find it interesting how well Moore reads uh, real history and societal problems into his narrative without calling much attention to it. And honestly, now that I think about it, I honestly would not be surprised if the whole riot um, was actually caused by Nixon because a uh, uh, comedian was working for Nixon at the time. So I would not be surprised if it was deliberately set up now, now that I think about it. 
Wow. Um, um, but anyway, uh, Moore is thinking through logical consequences of mass vigilantes existing. And the slow, uh, story just flows from that thought process. And you can even like interpret your own bits like, you know, the idea that, you know, the rights were a false flag, for example. I mean, you have the turbulence of the 1960s in opposition to the Vietnam War leading into the riots. And of course, the superheroes have to step in to stop it. But because this is Watchmen, <laughs> the heroes end up causing more problems than they solve. And the consequence of that is just to ban mass heroes entirely which is probably what the politicians wanted to do anyway, because this ends up uh, with the only active heroes being those sanctioned by the U.S. government. Now, while I don't want to get too much into politics, aside from uh, what the book delves into, I will say that this is what I point to when I talk about politics being done right in a comic. Note that I am not saying that politics has no place in art. Um, there is if it's done right. Absolutely, it does. My problem is that it's usually done badly. Um, I tend to grumble when the writer either doesn't know what they're talking about is presenting the same boring cliches while adding nothing of value to the debate and or is trying to manipulate the reader into taking their side, you know, without presenting like something really worthwhile. Um, the Watchmen does none of that. Um, Moore is very astute and informed about what he's writing about. And he presents events in a way that makes the reader think about what happens. He presents different sides of the argument as he does when Night Owl uh, argues with the comedian about what they do during the riot leading up to the Keen Act. Now, all of this is presented as how society would change in a world like this. And as with everything in Watchmen, it is all very artfully and tastefully done. You know, something, I, I don't know how I missed this before, but um, I I have to assume that Marvel's Civil War was inspired by Watchmen. Probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Miller is a huge fan of Moore. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it really is done well. Um, it has a very lived-in real feel to the story I, I can fully picture things going this way uh but if i could switch tempo here for a second i would like to make a comparison between a golden age hero and a silver age hero in the watchman universe hollis has the same type of feelings as rorschach about the city and its people that he got from his grandfather um it would seem that hollis has changed quite a bit since then but listen to this quote from under the hood from hollis mason uh or night out one of the things that my grandfather took great pains to impress upon me was that the country folk were morally healthier and that city folks and that cities were just cesspools into which all of the world's dishonesty and greed and lust and godlessness drained into. And, and it was left to fester unhindered. Some of the things I saw in the city during my first few years here filled me with a sort of ethical revulsion that I couldn't shake off. To some degree, I still can't. Compare that to Rorschach's entry from issue number one dog carcass and alley this morning tire tread on burst stomach the city is afraid of me i have seen its true face the streets are extended gutters and the gutters are full of blood and when the drains finally scab over all the vermin will drown the accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up about their waist and the hordes and politicians will look up and shout save us and i will say no this takes on even more depth when you count Rorschach's constant journal entries about his ethical revulsion of the city. Right. Uh, Moore and Gibbons are showing us a society that has rotted and decayed over the decades, using superheroes as a way to reflect that. Both Hollis and Rorschach recognize that growing rot in society, even though they see the solution to that in very different ways. Hollis looks at it as an, like an old soldier does, um, a guy who's been through the trenches and survived. Because he is a golden age hero, he means, uh, those, uh, maintains those old school sensibilities, and he tries to have hope for the younger generation. But then you have Rorschach, who has never seen a day of kindness in his life. So all he sees is darkness, and he gives into the cynicism of that world. 
So they both identify the problem, but they see the solution, if there is one, very differently. Rorschach's solution was to become a serial killer. <laughs> and I would say that Hollis's hopeful solution uh, was in good people like Daniel Dryberg taking up his mantle and doing some good with it. So very different ideas indeed. Uh, but speaking of Hollis Mason, um, I, I just have to comment as a writer about the brilliant way that Moore establishes his universe in the minds of his audience, the, the comic book readers. Uh, by having Hollis talk about his inspirations for becoming Night Owl being rooted in old pulp heroes, Moore immediately sets the story into a familiar world, at, at least for those who have read pulps or are familiar with that. The Shadow, Doc Savage, and others were the heroes before the birth of the superheroes in 1938 with Superman. Now he has established a connection to his universe with comic fans who didn't read the pulps. This both establishes the world we're about to dive into and connects the comics fan reading the comics to the world of the familiar. To imagine a hero like Hooded Justice coming out of that world is easy to do, and to imagine him inspiring others to be costume vigilantes is just a step forward from there. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I won't lie, it had an influence on the way that I build and develop superhero worlds as well. Uh, the inventor in Blitz, for instance, was very much designed uh, with that pulp mold in mind. But to get back to the uh, main point, Moore is extremely well-read on the evolution of the superhero genre, and we see that in a number of his works, including Tom Strong, uh, Top Ten, and uh, Miracle Man. And I think it makes sense to have the way heroes come on the scene in the Watchmen universe mirror the way that it happened in the pulps and the comics. I have to agree with that. The pulp heroes existing in comics are the perfect base for the universe. Writers and artists came up with the idea of needing people other than the police who were in many cases corrupt back when pulp heroes were popular to fight crime. I like the idea of that taking root in, per in a person's mind and inspiring them to put on a mask and fight crime themselves. I mean, who hasn't read superhero comics and imagined themselves doing it? Uh, sure, most of us do not actually do it, but there are literal people right now in the real world in costumes fighting crime in various cities across America. It is believed that the reason superheroing is more popular in America is due to the popularity of comic books and comic book movies. When Moore starts talking about the popularity of Superman and stuff, I can't help but compare that to modern times and real-life costume heroes like Phoenix Jones. You know, there is definitely that, and it might be that this book influenced people uh, who, who did do that. At the same time, uh, Moore sets up a golden age and a silver age, and then he brings everything crashing down in the 1970s. Uh, moreover, he really allows the superheroes to have an impact on the way the world and society develops. When Dr. Manhattan makes uh, Hollis Mason's job obsolete because of the new technology he introduces, it's a subversion that completely makes sense. So while it's a superhero universe that is built on top of literary influences, Moore takes a wrecking ball to it just by thinking through the logical consequences of these genre elements uh, existing in the real world. <laughs> Moreover, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, when you start talking about actually superpowered beings on Earth, it would absolutely change the game. The world would have to adjust to a new paradigm. But I'd like to go on to chapter two from here. Um, I get the distinct impression that Sally Jupiter doesn't feel like she accomplished much. And she looks back on the days when she felt like she was worth something and actually doing something real. Uh, 
That's where her rose-colored glasses come from. She also has shame, apparently, because she is Polish, and that's why she goes by Jupiter instead of her actual name, Juspesic, uh, like her daughter Lori. But unfortunately, the combination of these things fills Sally with the need to be overly critical and cruel to her daughter Lori, both as a means of pushing her daughter to do better than she did and as a way of venting how she really feels about herself. In a way, I think Sally might be treating her daughter how she feels like she should be treated. You are onto something there. Um, Sally Jupiter suffers from what I call Sunset Boulevard Syndrome. She's like <laughs> that aging starlet who used to be the it girl back during her glory days, but those days are long behind her. Everything for Sally is about recapturing her youth, which is the only thing that she has outside of her daughter. This goes back to Moore's points about nostalgia, which I'm sure we'll get into before too long, uh, but I digress. Anyway, that we see that uh, Sally starts acting like a stage mom, trying to relive her youth vicariously through her daughter, which is a thing that does happen. But uh, the problem is, is that Lori isn't her mother, and uh, she doesn't see the world in the same ways. Lori's sense of identity just ends up kind of damaged, both because of her mother's prodding and because she never knew who her real father was. You know, just as a quick side note, while, while we're on this topic... <laughs> Mm -hmm. Did it strike you as extremely weird when Lori told Sally at the end of the book that she's never done anything wrong by her? <laughs> uh, she's trying to be nice. Uh, it doesn't sound, <laughs> I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's true. <laughs> yeah, that, that line, that, that, that just caught me every time I read it. Uh, but it, yeah, it sounds Sally more like, it sounds like, it sounds like more she's accepting, um, you know, who her mother is and what she did, um, you know, just so it's a right. kind of way of making peace with, with what happened. I, I can see kind of kind of nice things, nice things you say to make peace rather than actually being true kind of thing. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sally is not winning any Mother of the Year awards. <laughs> no parent is required to be perfect, but it doesn't seem like there was a lot of thought on Sally's part about what was best for her daughter. But But let's move on. I must admit that seeing Hooded Justice straight up beat the shit out of the comedian for attempting to rape Sally Jupiter had me thinking that he might have been the one who beat the crap out of Edward Blake and tossed him through the window when I first read it. Rorschach made it seem like the comedian was a lot more than a regular person could handle and Hooded Justice definitely handled him. I'll also note that the comedian was clearly scared of Hooded Justice. When Hooded Justice grabbed the comedian, Edward Blake did not grab his wrists and remove Hooded Justice's hands or strike him in the nuts like he should have. In fact, he didn't fight back at all, as if he knew he had no chance in winning. That way, and, and, and that's why he called out Hooded Justice for being a sadist instead, using words as his weapon. Honestly, Hooded Justice was next to Rorschach when it comes to fierce brutality. He once disarmed and beat three men with such severity that all three required hospital treatment. And one of them subsequently lost the use of both legs as the result of a spinal injury. In another incident, Hooded Justice crashed through the window of a supermarket while a robbery was in progress and attacked the man responsible with such intensity and savagery that those not disabled immediately were all too willing to drop their guns and surrender. So the comedian's sharp words cut deep because there was truth in them. I would go as far as to say that those two are the most physically violent people in the Watchmen universe, referring to uh, Hooded Justice and, and, and Rojak. It would seem that being a sadist was not the perception that Hooded Justice wanted. It was justice he was after and not getting off on being violent. I get the impression that Hooded Justice did a moment of self-reflection there, like, is that what I have become? 
Uh, wanting to prove that Blake was not right, Hooded Justice quit beating on Comedian, despite having just said that he planned to break Blake's neck and told him to get out. Of course, Blake got the last word in by telling Hooded Justice that he has Hooded Justice's number now, and, and one day the joke was going to be on him soon. My theory wasn't true, and Hooded Justice was, the, was dead by the time the comedian was killed, but I didn't know that when I read the scene the first time. That was a nice red herring. Was it the same for you when you first read this? Uh, did you suspect Hooded Justice was the killer? I, I did wonder at first, and it's hard not to wonder that, really. The motive is certainly there, and there's no question that the comedian was a loathsome person who never faced justice for any of the horrible things that he's done until the very end. But that's exactly what Moore wants you to believe. The, the Hooded Justice tease is a brilliantly executed red herring, as you said, setting up a character with a real motive to hate Blake and one who has the ability to mess Blake up bad. But that's the thing with the really good murder mystery. They present a victim who everyone has a good reason to hate presenting many equally valid possibilities in the eyes of the reader. But no, it's a complete red herring with absolutely no bearing on the ending of the story at all. But they do such a good job of making Blake such an unlikable jerk that nobody would blame Hooded Justice if he had been the killer. It is really well played on Moore's part. But speaking of mysterious deaths, something always struck me about Hooded Justice. So in Hollis Mason's book, Mason talks about Hooded Justice having possibly been a, a German circus strongman named Rolf Mueller. Mueller ended up dead in a harbor roughly about the same time as Hooded Justice conveniently disappeared. And if you look back at the attempted rape of Sally Jupiter, Blake Rock walks off with an implied threat that he'd eventually find Hooded Justice and get his revenge. So given these clues, I think there's a conclusion that we're meant to draw there. But let's hold off on that discussion until a bit later when a particular scene brings this, all this into focus. But for now, I think you had something else to say about Hollis Mason and Hooded Justice? I do, Steve. Um... I would like to talk about another aspect that has been assumed by many into that scene based on a single line from Watchmen. In Under the Hood, Hollis Mason wrote, strangely enough, even though Sally would always be hanging onto his arm, on, into Hood of Justice's arm, he never seemed very interested in her. I don't think I ever saw him kiss her, although maybe that was just because of the mask. From that, it has been inferred that Hooded Justice was, in fact, gay. That paints the scene where the comedian says that Hooded Justice gets off on violence and H.J. clearly freaks out inside, come across in a, a, a totally different light, potentially. Uh, maybe H.J. was afraid that the comedian might have also been referencing that he was gay. It was the line, I've got your number, from Blake that really sealed that impression for me. I mean, was telling people that Hooded Justice was violent and that he really liked it going to be a shocker to anyone who hears it, considering his track record? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but what do you think about that, Steve? No, no, I don't think so either. I mean, I think it's definitely clear that Moore probably intended Hooded Justice to be gay. If you look at the scene where Hooded Justice beats up the comedian, Blake very hint clearly hints at this. This is what you like, huh? This is what gets you hot. Uh, you could argue that Blake is just saying that Hooded Justice just enjoys violence and hurting people, sure, and that's likely not wrong, um, but I think it's very likely that Blake was making a veiled jab at Hooded Justice being gay, implying that he enjoys rough play with other men. I, I like the way it's played subtextually, allowing the readers to interpret the scene either way. Personally, I see it as a bit of both. Awesome. It sounds like we're totally on the same page with Hooded Justice then. Um, in issue number two, we see that in 1966, Captain Metropolis, with the help of Ozymandias, had called a meeting of the people he had hoped would join him in the new Crime Busters team, the successors of the Minutemen, which had been disbanded 17 years prior in 1949. 
Vigilantism had always been a crime, but when Dr. Manhattan came onto the scene, the government wanted to wipe the board of America's enemies, both foreign and domestic. And to make that legal, the government made vigilantism legal for 11 years until the Keene Act was enacted in 1977. The only real protester to the crime busters was the comedian, who has a life goal of shitting on everything. But that is not to say that he did not have a point. Like he says uh, uh, later on in a flashback of the New York riots, the joke of the whole thing is that Americans got what they asked for. The American dream came true, and they were puking up the proverbial quail even and even dying for it. I think in this scene, the comedian reflects the view of Americans and others that there was no point planning for the future anymore, and that the world could erupt in nuclear fire at any minute. As the Sex Pistols says, there was no future, and honestly, the decadence of the 80s has a lot to do with that. What do you think about that scene, Steve? Uh, should they have banded together to try and set things right, or was there really no point in the Watchmen universe to bother anymore? Firstly, I'll say that Moore does a great job in completely twisting the gathering of the team story. In most uh, superhero team origins, the heroes meet, they move past their differences after maybe a misunderstanding battle, and they all eventually become friends and partners in the heroic cause. Uh, even the loner of the group is eventually won over. But here, all these characters do is show how divided and different they are in their approach to stopping crime, and they leave uh, Captain Metropolis holding the bag. It's a beautiful moment. As to your question, I'm probably not the right person to ask because I don't share more cynicism when it comes to superheroes. I, I'm not saying that Moore doesn't love superheroes, just that he tends to view them as a for kids kind of genre. And he writes superheroes well with a loving wink when he's doing them well. But his view of the reality of them is extremely bleak and fatalistic. Um, I take a per different view personally. Um, I happen to like the superheroic ideal, even if I, it's something that's difficult, if not impossible to reach. I personally think it's better to try and fail than simply accept the inevitable. Um, you're only certain to fail if you fail to try. Of course, some of my attitude have done that, maybe because we live in the timeline where nuclear Armageddon didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> that that admittedly does change things a bit and honestly if you didn't live during that time i don't think it's going to be easy to understand the effect that living under the constant threat of nuclear annihilation had it it, it, it was a it had a drastic effect on everyone's worldview uh, but i think i tend to see things the same way i i have never claimed to have all the answers or to be a badass or anything but but life throws us fights of all types, and I'm proud to be a fighter, as the Dropkick Murphys say. Uh, but honestly, I think Nick Fury said it best when in the first Avengers movie. Until such time as the world ends, we will act as though it intends to spin on. <laughs> but I believe you had a bit more to say there, and, and I kind of cut you off. Yeah, I did, in fact. Um, of course, the problem is that we're dealing with this group of people who are just not cut out to be a superhero group. <laughs> Nobody really trusts each other that much for the most part. And you have people like Captain Metropolis, who's just trying to recapture his glory days. And that's leaving out the powerful but emotional recluse and the two violent nutjobs on the group. <laughs> and Ozymandias, who's a problem in and of himself. But again, we'll get into him soon enough. Would it have been better if these people were actively trying to save the world? I I'm honestly not sure given how damaged, broken, or underqualified these people are. And as we saw, Captain Metropolis is no Steve Rogers, and he is just not capable of holding these different personalities together at all. I honestly think Captain Metropolis's flaw was assuming that he could run a team like a battalion. His own words. You can tell by the base that he picked out and his letter to Sally Jupiter that that was what he intended. 
But the people he assembled were not enlisted soldiers. They were individuals with contradictory worldviews and styles that would require a truly great leader like Captain America to keep them all together and functional. And like you said, he was just not there. Uh, but speaking of Dr. Manhattan, let me talk about him for a second. Back in issue one, Dr. Manhattan hears about the death of the comedian and has no real reaction to the news. And, and this bothers Rorschach. I wonder if there was more to it than just a cold and clinical counting of particles. I wonder if it does not go back to the end of the Vietnam War, when Dr. Manhattan and the comedian were in that bar and the pregnant woman approached the comedian about finally taking responsibility for the child in her belly now that the war was finally over. Blake coldly told her that he planned to forget about her, the baby, and her whole country. And so she slashed open his face with a broken bottle to give him something to remember all three by. Uh, in response, the comedian mercilessly shoots and kills her right there in the bar. You notice nobody reacts. There isn't any customers getting involved. The bartender isn't saying anything. <laughs> But here's the part that gets to my point. Dr. Manhattan told Blake not to kill her. But as Blake pointed out, John could have easily stopped him, but he did not. I do not think that this was because John was merely looking at the same amount of particles on the floor as he did tell Blake not to kill her and condemned him for gunning down a pregnant woman. Something did, however, stop John from acting there. And I, I do not know what it was. It could be detachment from humanity like Blake suggests, but why say anything if that was the case? But back to Dr. Manhattan not caring that Blake had died. I am curious if it was not Blake's abhorrent behavior that was part of him not giving a shit that the comedian was killed. Any thoughts or, or theories on all that, Steve? Hmm. Some of it comes back to one of the points that I'll get to about Dr. Manhattan when we get into some of the later reveals about him. That basically is that while John seems to be the most powerful being in the world, he has little to no a real agency or ability to change anything. I'll get into why I think that Moore designed him that way, but for now, let's begin into this scene specifically. The problem with Dr. Manhattan is that he sees everything and, and, and things have to happen the way he experiences them, out of order and jumbled up in time. I'm guessing that this was a person who was fated to die, and for whatever reason, he just couldn't change the outcome even knowing it would happen. I, I don't think it was just that he was detached, though I think years of being a virtual god disconnected him with humanity. Um, there are clearly some things he does care about, I mean, especially Laurie, but it may be that after a long time of living this weird quantum sort of existence, he just gave up on changing the outcome of certain events because he knows what has to happen in the future. It, it's hard to fully comprehend how John sees the universe, and because of that, it's hard to fully understand what his thought process is, especially when filtered through the lens of near omniscience. You know, uh, quick, quick, quick side question here. Um... In, in the movie, uh, they say that John says that he can only see his timeline, not uh, not all time. And 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 if you if you look at the, the graphic novel itself, it does seem to show that. I mean, all, all the times that that John is jumping through are all happened within his lifetime. Uh, what 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 do you think about that? It, it could be. I mean, it does. We know at the very least he's jumping around in his own personal time stream. Um, you know, and, and so it's like you have, for example, the scene where. You know, Lori, um, he tells Lori that he knows about her and Dan and then, you know, and basically says, OK, uh, you're going to tell me about this. And then he acts surprised when she tells him, even though he should know this. <laughs> so, you know, he, he has this weird, very, very weird uh, temporal existence and way of looking at things. And, you know, it's really, really hard to, to, to say anything with finality. That's probably true. Uh, but but but. 
back to what you said there. I want to comment on Moore's superhero deconstruction by way of Dr. Manhattan for a minute. Moore is, as of 1993, a self-described occultist, ceremonial magician, and an anarchist. He described himself once as being a devotee of Glycon, preferring the belief in a hoax deity because he is not likely to start believing that Glove Puppet created the universe or anything dangerous like that. Uh, so I think Dr. Manhattan is a reflection of Moore's views of America's capital G, God. And that is why the quote is, God exists and he is American. In regards to Dr. Manhattan, Moore is really deconstructing God, not, not necessarily a superhero. Uh, God is omniscient and, and omnipresent, but he has given mankind free will. Everybody always asks, how could God allow all these terrible things to happen? But none of them want to be controlled by God like puppets. They want their free will and God can go ahead and puppeteer everyone else in the world. That's just not how it fucking works. In, the specific, in that specific way, and without getting into a religious debate, God has little agency when it comes to mankind and, and what they do because he has given them free will. What do you think about that? There probably is some truth that Dr. Manhattan includes some of Moore's ideas on what a God walk in the earth might look like. Uh, John Osterman was a watchmaker, and it's likely that Moore was referencing the watchmaker theory of God when he put that together. But I think he's also reacting to blind patriotism, which can sometimes seem cultish if taken to an extreme. But since you've mentioned uh, Moore's belief in chaos, magic, and glycon, um, for general interest, I'll add a quick note. If you want uh, specifics on how Moore sees the spiritual and how he views magic, uh, read Promethea. Uh, that book is essentially Moore's uh, primer on magic in the form of a superhero comic. I'm not kidding. Um, not to mention it is quite a good read. Um, but, but speaking of books, I think you wanted to talk about Under the Hood. I do, but I'm definitely going to have to check out Promethea. Um, in, in an excerpt uh, Under the Hood, chapters 3 and 4, Hollis Mason admits to some pretty dark and harsh truth about the Minutemen and other costume heroes of his age. They might have fought crime, but fighting crime did not automatically make a person perfect or omniscient. We are all imperfect, and we all have issues, even those we think should not. There is this perception that heroes and others we look up to must be infallible and righteous at all times without exception. But I think what Hollis Mason is saying here is that even broken people can still be good and do great things. Yes, the Minutemen had serious issues. They were criminals, punishing people for breaking the law. And there were there were clearly some racial issues going on if Hooded Justice claimed to approve of the actions of Hitler and the Third Reich. And, and Captain Metropolis's both racially and prejudiced and inflammatory remarks. All of that is true. I have said this many times, and I will say this again, even a broken clock is bright twice a day. The broken and issue-laden Minutemen were there to do a job that no one else would do, and they did make a difference. For not, perhaps not in the grand scheme of things, but the smaller picture is, uh, is still valid, I think. Yeah, uh, there, there were people doing the best they could with what they had, which admittedly wasn't much. And most of them came into it with good intentions, even if they went completely awry later. The other thing is that uh, they were the only ones who were in a position to do much of anything to work make the world better. It's clear that the politicians and the cops weren't going to do much of anything. The heroes were the only people left, and we saw what a mess they turned out to be. But at least they seem to generally want to make things better for the most part. You know, it sounds like we're on the same page there, Steve. Uh, so let's move on to issue number three. The very first page of issue three really shows the absolute mastery of the page on, on the part of both Alan Moore and the artist and letterer Dave Gibbons. 
Uh, there are two narratives intertwined that lead seamlessly into a third one and drop off. There is a narrative of the tales of the Black Freighter and the newsstand vendor that lead into the story of Laurie and John. It more wrote it in such a way that while showing a scene from one story, he was continuing the narrative from another story, and the line would apply in both contexts. Maybe you have to be a comic creator to really appreciate that. I, I don't know. But that is masterclass comic book writing, art, and lettering, not your standard 101 stuff. Moore and Gibbons are perfectly utilizing every aspect of the comic book medium and showing their absolute control of the page. You know, people talk about the absolute control of the camera when Ridley Scott directs a film. Well, this is the comic book equivalent right here. Mike, I am so glad you noticed that because I completely agree. This leads into one of the points that frustrates me when I see filmmakers try to tackle this comic. Too many people think that Watchmen's importance and power comes from all the subversions and deconstructions of the characters and how dark they all are. I think the industry learned the wrong lessons from this, but that's a whole nother topic by itself. Um, but you just hit on what I think makes Watchmen a truly legendary comic and what I think Moore wanted people to realize. Moore wanted Watchmen to be an example of what the medium of comics was capable of accomplishing on a visual level. He wanted to show off what the camera could do, how you could frame a page in new and unique ways, how to achieve literary effects through, through sequential art. That entire sequence shows what comics are capable of achieving with the right amount of imagination and the right synergy with your artist. But that leads into one example of this, and that is the Tales of the Black Raider. Uh, Mike, I think you had an idea about that that you wanted to share? I, I do, actually. I, I totally do. Um, I... I I came up with a different theory about the tales of the black freighter mm -hmm. based primarily on when the watchman came out in 1986. Um, the Vietnam war had ended back in 75. And in this case, the black freighter represents war itself. And since we're talking about 1986, I think it's the Vietnam war specifically the black freighter in this analysis is a metaphor for war and the crew and the heads nailed to the prow of the ship represent the various views on war in 1985. But let me elaborate with the comic. In the tales of the Black Freighter, just the sight of the Black Freighter brought to mind the stench of powder, men's brains, and war in the captain's mind. In my theory, which is admittedly different from the author's intent, the captain in the tales of the Black Freighter represents the soldier who has come home from the war with PTSD. And for that matter, so do some of his deceased crew washing up on the shore. Those that returned were pale reflections of their former selves, just like the corpses on the captain's makeshift boat. The Black Freighter, a.k.a. War, rides off with the captain's family, which I think reflects war taking the soldier's family. Many families separated after the Vietnam War because the men that returned were no longer the men that they knew. Listen to the next bit from Tales of the Black Freighter. The heads nailed to its prow looked down. Those with eyes, gull-eaten, salt-caked, lipplessly mouthing, no use, all is lost. I think that phrase means a few things. But first, the captain refers to the heads on the prow of the Black Freighter as his men who fought in battle, or rather, his soldiers during the Vietnam War. His men being those heads nailed to the prow, the captain killing that man and woman on the beach because they have discovered his boat, and assume the man, a moneylender, was a conspirator with the Black Freighter, going into Davidstown and his own home, and savagely beat his wife to death in front of his own children, unaware of who he was killing. Uh, speaks of the plight of war veterans with PTSD and their difficulty reacclimating to society and family life as their heads are still nailed to the Black Freighter, to the war. 
it, it can feel out of reach and hopeless, like like there's no use in trying. They, they cannot escape it because they are nailed to it, or rather it is their own mind that they're trying to escape. Where does one hide from themselves? All is lost. At the same time, those heads seem to be the voice of those against the war and the sentiments of the 80s, which were, we have nothing but the now. The past is behind us and there is no future. Or as the heads say, no use, all is lost. You'll notice that several people throughout the comic mention that everything could be over at any minute. The weight of that crashing down on people particularly, but not limited to Daniel Dryberg, Laurie Juspesic, and I think even Edward Blake, who the threat of nuclear holocaust turned into a straight-up nihilist. Uh, but I also think this more directly means that the heads nailed to the prow of the Black Freighter, it, that is in itself a metaphor for war, are saying that there is no use for war and all is lost if that path is pursued. With the heads on the prow and the waters of the sea red and foaming with blood, the corpses washed up onto the shore, the crew of the Black Freighter shouted, more blood, more blood, which is in this theory represents the draft continuing on despite all of the outlandish death tolls of the war. It was just never enough. What, what do you think about that, Steve? I think that's absolutely a fair interpretation of the Black Raider scenes. It probably wasn't what Moore had in mind, but I think it definitely fits the ideas and themes that Moore was going for. And you know what? Sometimes in literary criticism, that's absolutely fine. Um, I believe in the importance of authorial intent, and I think you should consider it when and where it makes sense. But sometimes it's also fine to invoke the death of the author principle, where you can just uh, interpret a work irrespective of what the author had in mind when he wrote it. Um, if, mind you, it's consistent with what's in the text. I think it is in this case, especially when you take hits on some of Moore's ideas quite well. I like the war angle, and Moore was commenting on Armageddon and the Doomsday Clock with this series, very anti-war views. So I think it's absolutely fair game if you want to go with it. Um, now, some points about the Black Freighter before I go on. Moore came up with the idea of a pirate comic, um, thinking about what kinds of comics that a world of superheroes would have. So he went with the idea of comics featuring non-superhero genres, and that led to Moore including the pirate comic. And I think that was a good genre to use since it leads to Moore's uh, main idea with the Black Freighter. In my view, uh, Moore is trying to illustrate the fall of man, how far people can be pushed until they lose all veneer of civilization and justify any kind of horrific act. The sailor starts off as a fairly decent human being, but when the, the story is over, he's become something monstrous in order to survive. This was probably intended to echo the mystery killer, and if you've read the book or seen the film, you'll know who that is, and we'll get into that in soon. As it turns out, though, uh, Moore actually would touch on this idea years later in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, 1912, taking a riff of, off of the uh, Three Penny Opera. Um, as he wrote it in the uh, LOEG story, quote, mankind is kept alive through darkest deeds, um, unquote. Sometimes what keeps a person alive is that dark animalistic side of humanity, the side that just cannot function in civilized society. You can definitely see that with the Minutemen as well, especially uh, Rorschach and the Comedian. But you could also see the Black Freighters reflecting the rot in the society that we've talked about before. So while it is an echo for one character's arc in particular, you argue that it reflects humanity's fall in a general sense as well. You could also interpret Black Freighter uh, as death itself, constantly tempting humans to feed it more lives to satisfy its unending hunger for human lives. 
we had talked a bit about the line you mentioned there. Uh, Mankind is kept alive through darkest deeds and how that idea is found in Watchmen. As as well, like you mentioned, with Adrian Veidt saving the billions of humanity by killing millions of them. Uh, the comedian and Dr. Manhattan killing for the government and even Rorschach and his particularly violent, murderous brand of justice. So I totally see that idea continuing in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That, that was a good call there. Uh, but did you have any closing thoughts on the tales of the Black Freighter, Steve? I do have a few quick things to say. Do you need to read the Black Freighter to get a full picture of Watchmen? No, not necessarily. But I think you miss a part of Moore's vision if you don't at least expose yourself to it at least once and see what you think of it. It really does connect thematically, even if it doesn't seem important at first. Honestly, I love that it is open to interpretation like that. I mean, we both read the same story and got something different out of it. I think that's really cool. Uh, but if mm -hmm. I could switch over uh, to a bit of a side point. Um, I can't help but notice uh, something that I think is directly inspired by the scene in issue number three where Rorschach in his civilian clothes came to the newsstand to get his magazine and the news vendor asked him how the end of the world was coming. Rorschach's response is interesting. He says, it'll happen today. I've seen signs. National Examiner reported a two-headed cat born in Queens. In the Death of the Family storyline from Scott Snyder's uh, run on Batman, uh, they talked about certain eerie signs that signaled the return of the Joker. And one of the big ones was that a two-headed lion cub was born in the zoo. Uh, I think Scott Snyder was playing uh, off that end of the world feeling from Watchmen with Joker being at the end of the Bat family. Well, almost. Yeah, you know, I still haven't read that much of Scott Snyder's Batman, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's an intentional nod. A lot of modern comics writers love to do little small um, nods of Watchmen like that. Uh, for instance, uh, the Nova Express, the newspaper that uh, confronts Dr. Manhattan, is referenced in Fabian Nicieza's short run on Nova in the mid-90s, where Nova tries to do basically a delivery service called the Nova Express. <laughs> so I really dig that. Uh, Watchmen is just so influential that it gets referenced a lot by later creators. Anyway, I think that that quote is interesting because it shows how paranoid and delusional that Rorschach is with some of his views. He's very much a case of the stop clock that's right twice a day, uh, as you said, uh, with two heads, as it turns out. <laughs> that, that is certainly true. Uh, but but, but let, me, let me switch topics here. Um, I get the impression that Laurie was practically the only thing keeping John on Earth. I get the impression that part of him really did want to please and satisfy Laurie. He honestly just didn't know how. He was just too disconnected, not just from others, but from moments in themselves and even within himself. John was doing like six things at once, uh, including being intimate with Lori. I think John's issue is that relationships are more than math problems. Lori, like most people, needs emotional connection. Having a bond is important, and that was part of the equation that John was too detached to figure out. Lori wanted him, and he literally could not give it to her. For all of his knowledge, the heart was lost. Laurie was under extreme pressure to keep John happy as he was America's national defense. As Russia invaded Afghanistan, as soon as Dr. Manhattan left the planet, it's pretty obvious that the fate of the world was on her shoulders. But there is only so much a heart can take. She was understandably upset about two Johns trying to have sex with her. But I think that it was the proof that John had completely departed emotionally that made her leave. That was about as personal of a relationship that John could muster. 
so that that had to feel like a loss. Then to find out that his very presence has given many people cancer proved to John that there was no more point in even trying to connect with humanity. That's definitely a correct take. Uh, John did value the people who he cared about before he was changed. And it's clear that Lori was probably the last significant tie that John had to humanity. Without her, he has no reason to remain on Earth, as you pointed out. As, as for Lori, I think she really did try to connect to John, but he's evolved into something that she cannot relate to or understand. What makes sense to him is beyond her comprehension. She can't understand what he is and how it affects him, and he's disconnected from her emotional reality. So there's no way that that relationship was ever going to last, especially when Dan Dryberg inserts a picture. So I think this is a good time as any to get into those details. I couldn't agree more, Steve. So here we go. In issue number four, we get a first glimpse at how John, a.k.a. Dr. Manhattan, sees things. He is completely outside of time in the quantum sense. All of time is happening in the same moment. He can pause at certain times and join in the moment if he would like, but he is more of an observer at this point than a participant. His sense of present is not the same as those trapped in the three dimensions of time, past, present, and future. He is in a moment, but... He is also simultaneously in an infinite number of other moments. John actually sees time as both fixed and in unwitting destiny and changing based on observation because he sees time in a quantum state. In a quantum universe, there are no such things as accidents, only possibilities and probabilities folded into existence by perception like Schrodinger's cat. The cat is not either alive or dead. In the quantum realm, he is both alive and dead until he is observed. To take it one step further in the quantum physics, regardless of what you know or think you know, anything could potentially be inside that box, not just a pissed off cat. A law of quantum physics is that the observer affects the observed. In the same way, the photon changes from a particle to a wave based upon whether or not it is being observed. Observation and perception determine reality in the quantum realm. When Dr. Manhattan goes to moments in time, the possibilities and probabilities of what could happen collapse into one reality, and the same reality keeps appearing because John is observing it. Because of his perception of Schrodinger's box, as we found out in before Watchmen series, a new perspective or observation on an event can actually change time and make new possibilities and probabilities form in a different or slightly altered way that could splinter in, off into a million more. Just imagine all of that going on in John's mind, infinite probabilities and infinite moments in time all at once. The responsibility is great and the potential madness to a lesser mind is very real. This explains the way we've been seeing John uh, and the people he interacts with in the previous issue, particularly in issue number three. Dr. John Osterman is spread across all of time like butter over too much bread, and that is why he has lost his humanity. Humans must live and feel every moment and do so under the cold shadow of death. Emotions and mortality are integral parts of the human experience. John was able to kill Sans morality. He said it escaped him. Like he tried to care, but he just didn't. Yet at the same time, he does know what morality is, as he calls the comedian the most deliberately amoral person he has ever met. John's detachments have detachments. <laughs> it's all math to him. What's working against him is that he thinks that the perspective is right, that he's one of the few who can see the human condition clearly. But when it comes to the human equation, he can in no way understand the human experience. 
Dr. Manhattan cannot die. He was disintegrated for fuck's sake and still reformed himself. Not once, but twice. And memories and moments are like easily discarded photos for him. Like light from the stars is so is in reality so far away that it takes a really long time just to reach us. So too are John's memories and moments of life to him. The important thing to keep in mind is that Dr. Manhattan is paradoxically most the most powerful being on Earth and the character with the least control over anything that happens in this series. John experiences time in fragments and out of sequence, almost like he's jumping around in his own personal time stream with near-perfect omniscience, and yet he cannot affect or alter anything. I think this is why he often seems like a passive character who doesn't bother helping anyone. He's essentially like a marionette of the forces that recreated him, and he even sees that himself. I mean, he's the puppet that can see the strings as he says. Uh, John passively just reacts to everything and allows everyone to make his decisions for him, and even admits that he has this tendency even before he's exposed to the intrinsic field generator. That part of him gets worse after he becomes Dr. Manhattan. So that's a large part of what's going on with this character as well. You know, uh, just as a quick side point, we have talked about our varying views between uh, 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 on, on time itself, whether or not fate is involved or whether or not things are set. And you have you have expressed that you feel that uh, future is not necessarily as set as that. So like even if we're going back in time, we still don't know that Hitler will go through the things that he, he does and it, that we think he is. Sure. It, it, it might have gone by differently. And I, I got to mm -hmm. wonder if if you're not seeing time in kind of a quantum sense like that as well, that it's that possibilities and probabilities uh, could change based upon uh, the observed or a, a decision that all, you know, splinters off into a different reality or, or something like that. I'm just trying to understand how you see things there. Well, yeah, I'm just kind of going um, based on uh, what's been established in the book. So I'm just kind of uh, going off of how Moore sees it. But right. I mean, personally, personally, I think, yeah, if you're going to have a power like John's, where you can, you know, visualize virtually anything as you observe it. You know, just being able to observe things changes time itself. You know, you, you have to be very, you're going to be very, very careful about what you observe, aren't you? So, you know, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated situation, you know, just really both with the science of it and also, you know, about how John himself, you know, works in terms of his power, um, you know, his perceptions of time and everything else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. That, that that makes sense. You know, you know, John is a very complicated guy to say the least. Yep. <laughs> we found out about yeah, we found out about the Keen Act here in, in, in issue number four from Dr. Manhattan's perspective. Uh, we know a lot of this stuff already, as I talked about it before, but one thing I would like to mention is Rorschach in this situation. Rorschach gave exactly two shits about vigilantism being illegal since the Keene Act and refused to reveal his identity before the Committee of Un-American Activities, nor would he retire either, which made him a wanted fugitive. Rorschach did, however, give an explanation why he refused and an answer to the government's demands that he expose himself, uh, work for them or retire. Uh, but in a way, that was totally 100% Rorschach. He left the corpse of multiple rapist Harvey Charles Furness outside the police precinct with a note bearing his symbolized signature and the word never. In other words, because there are sick fucks like Furness in the world that police and governments can't or won't handle properly, there is a need for Rorschach to exist. Until that sewer scabs over and the end comes, Rorschach will not abandon New York or real justice. Here we begin to see that someone like Rorschach can't possibly fit into the society of this world. He has a very clear-cut moral view of the world that is at odds with what society values 
and Rorschach will never compromise on any of it. He also won't compromise in his belief that Rorschach is a ne is, is necessity. So he starts um, off fighting criminals and then ends up becoming one because society has decided that people like him are obsolete. I think that Rorschach's uncompromising nature is, oddly, part of the reason why he ends up being such a likable character, even though we're supposed to hate him. Um, we may not like what his principles are, but we can respect Rorschach because he never wavers on them, and he won't stop doing what he thinks is right until he's forced to stop. He's the one person who openly defies the Keen Act, who is not killing people for the U.S. government. Rorschach is just as bloody as Blake or John, but he's doing it out of his own twisted sense of morality. There is no way that the world can ever accept that for long, and as we eventually see, it doesn't. It is very common for serial killers to have some kind of moral or religious base as a reason for killing. I'm not saying that a sane person is going to agree with their perceptions, but at the same time, I think if we saw the world the way they did, we might be compelled to take action as well. I think that is perhaps the last thing that a sane reader can really apply to understanding or relating to Rorschach. In his mind, he is doing the right thing, and we all want to be doing that. Uh, very true. Now, it's at this point that I feel like I need to explore what I think Moore is doing with Dr. Manhattan as a character. Some of it Moore even comes out and says directly, though it's treated as an offhand comment or a joke. Around the second issue or so, Sally Jupiter says that the only difference between Dr. Manhattan and an H-bomb is that the H-bomb doesn't need to get laid once in a while. <laughs> this is delivered as a joke, and it's, it's funny, but I think metaphorically, this is exactly what Moore is going for here. My larger take on John is that he's essentially a metaphor for a nuclear weapon. He is the most powerful thing in existence, but he's used only for destruction and he has absolutely no agency whatsoever. He also kills indiscriminately and he doesn't care who gets caught in the crossfire. Uh, John is used as a tool by the US government to kill people or to be presented as a nuclear deterrent against the Russians from attacking. The politicians that employ John only see him as a weapon and the only thing they seem to fear is losing control over him much as they might be afraid of nukes ending up in the wrong hands. Keep in mind that the, the following quote from Wally Weaver in the backup segment of, to the issue, what I said was, God exists and he's American. If that's a statement that starts to chill you after a couple of moments consideration, then don't be alarmed. A feeling of intense and crushing religious terror at the concept only indicates that you are still sane. <laughs> it, it's a kind of fear that someone like J. Robert Oppenheimer might've felt at the thought of creating a weapon that could potentially end the entire world. Dr. Manhattan is the idea of a superhero as a living weapon of mass destruction, and he carries all the implications that come with that idea. I'll also add that the H-bomb getting laid thing makes a weird kind of sense, too. Look at the design of the weapon. It is clearly designed to be a phallic symbol as a show of strength to the rest of the world. This is probably why John is so often shown flashing his junk around without the care in the world. I, I, I think that Moore saw the phallic aspect of the bomb and made it a literal part of John's character. If you see Dr. Manhattan as less of a Captain Atom figure and more of a walking, talking nuclear weapon, a lot of things that Moore uh, does with John start to come into focus. Does that sound like a plausible theory, Mike, or might I be reaching with this? Um, it, I'll be honest, it, it never occurred to me to view John's nudity like that. I, I always viewed it as uh, just being because he was never going to be hot or cold, and I imagine he just didn't care what people thought of it. 
At the same time, I can't think of any reason why that theory couldn't be true. But as far as John being a symbol of a nuclear weapon, I can totally get behind that. There, there is no doubt in my mind that is where Moore was going with that. I'm even reminded of Bernard, the news vendor, saying that we should nuke the Russians until they glow. And John himself does glow. Um, I don't I don't really see another way to see John, actually. I, I think you're right on point there with that bit. Awesome. So it looks like we're in general agreement there. And I do agree that John has moved beyond mortal concerns, whether it's heat or cold or even the opinion of society. So he doesn't care about flashing wherever he goes. <laughs> anyway, um, let's turn our attention to the next issue. Um, I think you noticed something that you wanted to bring up. Hell yeah. Um, Watchmen is a comic that requires you to pay close attention to catch everything uh back in issue number three on the very first page you see a guy hanging up a nuclear fallout sign i think everyone sees that uh but did you happen to look at what was hanging on the wall to his right uh there was a missing persons poster on that wall about a missing writer and not just any writer max shay the writer of the tales from the black raider comic then, here in issue number five, Rorschach puts the pieces together. We find out that was a seed that was planted back in issue number three. It turns out that the island that the comedian had mentioned to Moloch had artists and writers living on it. It obviously turns out to be Bites Island, where his extra-dimensional creature was made, but we don't know that yet. I, I just appreciated the breadcrumbs there. Uh, this is definitely a book where you need to pay attention to every element in the frame. Uh, Moore and Gibbons worked out the story out meticulously, and if you look really hard at the early issues, you see how they seeded it. The connection between the Black Freighter and Vite is also much more concrete, knowing that Vite was mixed up in the different disappearance of Max Shea. Good observation there. I think we're agreed on that. Uh, but I'd like to shift gears here a little. Um, I have to comment on the historical fiction writing in Watchmen as it pertains to the tales of the Black Freighter comic. They weave very convincing tales using an actual person in Joe Orlando and the actual company that existed in EC and even mentioned piracy and actual comic from EC. Uh, the artist on EC Tales of the Black Freighter was none other than Joe Orlando in the Watchmen universe. He did, in fact, work for EC and later DC in real life. He even worked on Westerns, though it was later on. Max Shea, however, was a made-up character and one of the science fiction writers that Byte had invited to the island. Also, they mentioned the, the quality comics title, Buccaneers, which, while an actual comic is not from EC, as they say in the graphic novel, uh, quality comics was purchased by National Comics Publications, later DC. Uh, so really, it all works out in the end. My point is that this is done absolutely perfectly. And, and I'll be honest, they had me fooled. I had to look this stuff up before I knew it wasn't real. Mad skills here, folks. Mad skills. Mad skills indeed. Moore understood his comics history quite well, and we've seen that numerous times. I think it's probably most evident in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where the later volumes reference some extremely obscure British characters and duplicate the visual styles from those old comics perfectly. But you also see it to a certain extent with Miracle Man, Supreme, Tom Strong, and other comics that draw reference to really old and obscure books. But to get back to uh, Watchmen, we definitely see that Moore and Gibbons are drawing on the styles of those old pirate comics, reflecting what artists like Orlando and Joe Kubert might have done. Um, it's also possible that Moore went through the old hit library of stuff that DC owned to find the right pirate comic to reference. Um, either way, it's a really deep and obscure reference to Pulp, but it totally works. Now, um, not too long ago, there was a big announcement about how Tom Taylor wrote an entire issue of Nightwing 
that looks at the world through the eyes of Dick Grayson. And that is a cool technique to use. I, I dug it. But Taylor was not the first to do it. In, the, in this issue, Moore spends several pages following Rorschach as we see the world through his perspective in the exact same way. It even weaves its way into the tales of the Black Freighter, and it seems seamless. Uh, I wouldn't even be surprised if Taylor's idea was influenced by Moore, I mean, to be honest. I mean, these are the kinds of techniques that Moore is experimenting with, framing what happens in very cool and different ways. You know, a, a comic book writer could learn a lot by seeing how Moore and Gibbons worked every inch of the page. I have only read the saga of the Swamp Thing and Batman the Killing Joke besides Watchmen as far as Moore's work goes. But I can tell you that while Watchmen seems to be the pinnacle of what we're talking about here, all of Moore's work has a lot to be learned from. The saga of the Swamp Thing in particular was very formative in my inspirations as a comic writer, which is why I tend to be a bit wordy. Uh, but Gibbons and Moore really did something special with Watchmen. And like Moore's run on Saga of the Swamp Thing, in many ways revitalized the genre so too did Watchmen. Reading through Watchmen for this show has again taught me even more. Uh, but I have gone off on this for a bit now. Uh, what do you say we get into Rorschach, Steve? Yeah, let's do it. So let's talk a little bit about how Rorschach is set up. Before I uh, do, though, I, I think they brilliantly weave in Rorschach's capture with the Black Vader segment in this issue. So in the Freighter segment, this, the sailor is attacked by a shark. The sailor kills the shark to survive, and then he eats the shark raw to keep himself alive at sea. When this perspective shifts to the two detectives, one of them misunderstands Rorschach's name, hearing it as Raw Shark. Why would <laughs> I want to know like, about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Little moments like that really make me appreciate how well this tie comic ties everything together. Um, but I also want to commend the way that Rorschach is set up by the killer. The killer knows that Rorschach suspects that there's a mass killer, and he plays into Rorschach's paranoia to throw him off. Then he quietly has Moloch kill to silence him, but also to throw the finger of blame on Rorschach when he arrives to discover what happened. And after setting all this up, the killer then sends an anonymous tip to the cops to pursue Rorschach. The killer barely has time to lift a finger or, uh, and, and the police do all the work for him. It's really quite a clever plan and all the pieces are there if you pay attention to the small details. Uh, what did you think of the end of the issue and the setup, Mike? Mike was somehow keeping an eye on Rorschach to know that he had been to Moloch's apartment in order to set him up. Um, either that or Vite had a person keeping an eye on Rorschach. That, that's the only way that that makes sense to me. Um, I tend to think it was someone else that was working for Vite, but it was Vite's plan. Uh, but truth be told, we don't actually know for sure who it was that killed Moloch or called the cops of Rorschach to set him up. Uh, we, we assume it was Vite, but I think the only thing Vite did was actually kill the comedian. I think he had people to do the rest of it. Plus, I don't recall Vite do, doing voices before. And it certainly sounds like uh, it was not Vite on the phone with a detective. Uh, but that is just my theory. Uh, either way, though, uh, it was a brilliant plan that knew exactly how to predict Rorschach's actions. Knowing that he had been to Molex before and Rorschach's desperation to figure out who the mass killer was... It, it not only made it so that the architect of the plan didn't have to lift a finger to do it this way, Rorschach was actually doing most of the work for him. Yep. Rorschach definitely laid a lot of groundwork. Here again, we see some really interesting tricks that Moore and, and Gibbons use in the visual storytelling. Rorschach is the primary character in this issue, setting him against uh, Dr. Malcolm Long. The, the psychologist has been assigned to Rorschach's case. That ends up really playing into what this book does using the inkblot test to handle visual transitions between scenes, 
um, as well as reinforced imagery. The first card that Long shows Rorschach comes back repeatedly, and Rorschach interprets it as the shadow of two people involved in a sex act. We see this shadow over and over again throughout the issue, but it first shows itself in the, in the flashback of Rorschach's mother in the act of servicing a client. The other major image comes later with the moment that truly ends up defining Rorschach, which is the split head of a German shepherd that he was forced to kill in the Blair Roche case. Both of these images come back over and over again, which ends up reinforcing the book's themes while also working to reflect Rorschach as a character. Even now, I keep being taken aback by how masterful the visual storytelling is in the book and how the art and the, art and the story flow so seamlessly together. Has it been the same for you, Mike? Oh, definitely, Steve. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I have learned quite a bit diving into Watchmen graphic novel for this episode. I actually can't wait to get into writing my next comic. Uh, but continuing the Rorschach exploration, we get a peek into Rorschach's life in Watchmen. Um, it would seem... In, in the Rorschach story, uh, that his mother was a prostitute and likely became one in order to support having a child. This could explain why she was so abusive and hateful towards young Walter and blamed him for all of her problems. She often told him that she should have had an abortion. His mom would kick him out on the porch while she did her business, even in the dead of winter. Walter once stayed out on the porch until his toes turned black from the cold. This is relevant because Rorschach hated prostitutes. Some of this was based on morality derived from a god he no longer believes in, and some of it was based on the law. But Rorschach is one of those that seems to have his own code that is a blend of sorts with his own additions. But that was Walter Kovacs. Rorschach is a borderline nihilist in that he believes that life has no meaning but what we apply to it. If you ask me, Rorschach is a serial killer in the guise of a masked hero. I only bring that up because if not for one event, I think Walter Kovacs could have easily gone that way without his code. One night, a woman named Kitty Genovese was beaten, raped, and stabbed to death outside her apartment building. The 38 residents of the building all heard it and saw it but did nothing. This happened on the night of March 13, 1964. When Walter heard about all of those people watching this happen and doing nothing, he became ashamed to be part of the human race, so much so that he could not bear to look at his own face. That was when he parted ways with the human race and made the Rorschach mask. Uh, but he was not yet Rorschach. In his own words, he was Walter pretending to be Rorschach. He had not worked up the ability to kill yet and was weak in his own eyes and unwilling to do what was necessary uh, to kill the predators like they deserved. It was not until killing those German shepherds with that cleaver and burning that child killer alive that Rorschach awakened. But listen to this in his own words. This rudderless world is not shaped by vague metaphysical forces. It is not God who kills the children. No fate that butchers them or destiny that feeds them to the dogs. It's us. Only us. The streets stank with fire. The void breathed hard on my heart, turning its illusions to ice, shattering them. Was reborn then, free to scrawl my own design on this morally blank world, was Rorschach. Crossing that line to become a killer is when he truly became himself. He would not be the first serial killer with a moral code that believed they were doing good. Walter Kovacs became Rorschach's mask to the world, and his literal mask became his real face. Again, a detachment from humanity is also very serial killer-like. If not for the focus turned to crime because of Genovese murder, this could be an entirely different story. Listen to these words from Watchmen with that knowledge in mind. My things were where I'd left them, waiting for me. Putting them on, I abandoned my disguise and became myself, free from fear or weakness or lust, my coat. My shoes, 
my spotless gloves, my face. I'm inclined to agree on Rorschach's nihilism. And again, this is where the comic tends to delve deeply in Derrida-style deconstructionism. Note also that Rorschach is the one person who seemed to truly respect and admire the comedian, who most people in this story actively hated. The comedian is another character who tends to stray deeply into nihilism, seeing only meaninglessness in the world, which is why he treats life as a joke. I think the difference between them is that Rorschach prefers to lash out in the evil in the society rather than just to laugh at it. Another thing I'll add is that Moore had done his research with the Kitty Genovese incident too. That was a real murder case. And it is true that 38 witnesses uh, stood by and did nothing as she was killed. That having been said, some of them did call the police. Uh, just nothing was done in time to save her. But adding the Kitty Genovese murder as the first step that set uh, Walter Kovacs down the path to becoming Rorschach was a nice touch. The addition here that uh, Rorschach's mask was based on a dress by uh, that Kitty Genovese had bought in return. But I think it adds up nicely, showing visually that Rorschach sees only in black and white with no room for grace at all. Again, the writing and the art just weave together so seamlessly in this book. Wow. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't pick up on the whole Rorschach only sees black and white thing with his mask. Mm -hmm. But that, but that absolutely fits. I, I also find myself now wanting to go back through the book and see what shapes are actually on Rorschach's mask at the different times to compare them with what Walter told the psychiatrist about. Uh, you have opened my eyes, my friend, but I think there was another Rorschach moment that you wanted to discuss, right, Steve? There is it as it happens. Um, I don't think we can discuss this issue without bringing up the iconic scene in the prison cafeteria where Rorschach burns one of the other inmates with a tray of scalding hot fat. <laughs> but the line that everybody remembers in this is this classic from Rorschach. I'm not locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with me. That, that whole moment is awesome. Uh, Rorschach is kind of like the Punisher in the sense that putting him in jail doesn't really stop him in any meaningful <laughs> way. It just puts him closer to more of his victims and makes it easier for Rorschach to kill all of them. <laughs> I think he's more bothered by the confiscation of his mask than he is about actually being in prison. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you at all? Oh, it totally makes sense. In fact, I'm glad that you made the Punisher comparison there. I, I had a similar thought as well, uh, as far as the Punisher being in prison and Rorschach. Also, I have to agree with you about Rorschach's mask. He was extremely upset to have his mask taken from him. It's almost like he becomes uh, when he puts on his mask, psychologically speaking. In Rorschach's fractured mind, I wonder if taking his mask off while he was in Rorschach mode was not a major trauma for his mind. You'll notice that you never see him as Walter Kovacs again after that. I, I think that moment might have erased Kovacs and left only Rorschach. Uh, that is why his first concern was retrieving his extra mask and clothes. He needed to feel like himself again. But how did Rorschach affect Dr. Long, Steve? Well, Rorschach basically gives him undiluted Rorschach. <laughs> um, Dr. Long uh, comes in with the hopes of making some kind of breakthrough, probably with the idea of making a huge name for himself by curing Rorschach of his inner demons. Um, it doesn't work at all. Rorschach not only sees through all the nonsense, he even seems to be at first to be fooling the psychiatrist. But it becomes clear that for all of his training as a professional therapist, Long has never seen true evil in the way that Rorschach has. So when Rorschach actually shows him, it ends up having a noticeable impact on his life. His relationship with his wife suffers. He can't even talk about his work casually to friends without bringing up the horrific things that Rorschach shared with him. It's very much a case of looking in the abyss only for the abyss to stare into you in return. Um, it, very Nietzschean. I think that Long does come into the Rorschach case with good intentions, but he's just woefully unprepared to deal with the level of inhumanity that created Rorschach. 
Did you have any thoughts on that, Mike? Uh, first, I would like to take it a step further and say that it was Rorschach that convinced Dr. Long that he could not merely stand by and allow crime to take place in front of him, despite his wife saying that she would leave him if he acted. Second, I absolutely think that this is a case of the abyss staring back at Dr. Long. It was as if the veil that had been hiding Dr. Long's eyes from the true horrors of the world had been lifted. Dr. Long said that he couldn't help Rorschach, but I think he couldn't tell Rorschach that he was wrong. How about that, Steve? I think that makes complete sense to me. I think when you see evil like that, you can either run away from it or try to stop it. The Rorschach way is definitely confrontation. But much of the world doesn't want to look at it, uh, much as we saw with the Kitty Genovese case. And we also see it uh, with the social circles that Long runs through. This is why someone like Rorschach can never find a place in the world. But I think we've looked at the abyss long enough, Mike. So why don't we get into the more hopeful characters in this series? <laughs> that sounds like a great idea, Steve. Uh, we do not want to become monsters ourselves, after all. <laughs> I have to say that I really like Daniel Dryberg and Laurie Duspesic as a couple. I have since those guys tried to mug the two of them in the alleyway and they beat the crap out of them. It's like after the disconnect and loneliness of being with John and the boredom of it all, it felt good to cut loose and yet connect with someone who actually paid attention to her. Plus, as she would later describe to John, Daniel wasn't a strong and forceful guy, which makes her edgy. He was receptive and she felt as if uh, she could pour her troubles into him. They, they had a real bond between them. With Dan, I think he felt powerless because of the escalating World War III threat, the mass killer and everything. Fighting back in the alleyway with Lori was a release of that frustration. And, and even if it was only on a microscopic level, they did some good. Uh, they stood against the rising tide, even if it was for a moment, and it felt great. Uh, they got him thinking about the years gone by, and that makes me think of Lori's mom, Sally Jupiter. Uh, she is mean old bat with a permanent sour puss on her face like it has been etched in. <laughs> but that rant aside, she talked about looking back on her days with the Minutemen, which, considering Blake beat her ass and almost raped her, were kind of dark times. But she was able to see her past, even the darkness, brighter and brighter all the time. The decades have erased all but the nostalgia of the past. All of that to say, I think that fighting those thugs in the alleyway turned that light on for in the darkness for Dan. He only did it originally because others were going were doing it too. He would not have done it on his own. So having Laurie to put on the costumes with and go save those people from the fire brought back some confidence and, and some real personal power and youth was redeemed. Uh, to be honest, I think he felt more like a man there than he had in a while. Hence, the making love in Archimedes and the cloud of fog by moonlight over the city of New York. I, I like Dan and Lori together as well, and it makes a lot of sense why they'd gravitate towards each other. I mean, neither of them have any real friendships outside of the mass community, and there aren't too many of them. With John out of the picture, it makes sense that Lori would turn to someone who can understand and relate to her. For Dan, he's finally met someone who can see how interesting he really can be beneath his owl fixation in the ornithology papers. It, it, it's clear that um, Moore is commenting on the mask and costumes as a sexual kink. It's pretty strongly hidden that the reason that Dan kept the picture of the Twilight Lady was that it turned him on. Um, we also see that Dan has trouble getting it on until he and Lori put on their costumes. But I think it's also the connection between going out in action together with the act itself. They're both very uh, turned on by the adrenaline of being heroes, uh, leading to the pun very much intended climax of the issue. <laughs> it sounds like we're on the same page, more or less. Uh, but, I, but I believe you had one more thing to add before we move on to the H issue. Am I right, Steve? 
I do indeed. Uh, the other interesting thing about the issue is how superheroing has become an addiction for Dan and Lori. To be honest, I think it's probably more that they love the adrenaline rush of crime fighting uh, than superheroing in and of itself. But there's a metaphor being uh, drawn between that and how Lori has trouble giving up smoking as much as she's tried to quit. Dan has spent a long time convincing himself that he's moved on from superheroes, but he can't completely give it up either. But he can't get away from the rush and the excitement forever, especially when it's something that he can share with someone else. Dan's arc is about rediscovering himself and getting back to the man he was. And really, I love that Dan and Lori end up being the only people in this book that get more positive and uplifting arcs in this book. I really like that, too. And honestly, Watchmen would have been too dark and bleak without that bit of light from Dan and Lori's relationship. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But let's get into issue number eight. Um, I have to say that I loved the prison break. So far, Rorschach has fried a guy's face who was going to shank him with boiling fat. And we did not get to see the specifics on this, but he carved a guy's face off. <laughs> but getting the guy to kill his own man because he was in the way and then getting the guy uh, with him uh, with the electricity to shock himself with the toilet water was fucking awesome. <laughs> Her. I, I never disposed of sewage with toilet water before. Obvious, really. Do nothing. <laughs> I, I do wonder what what he did uh, to that little guy and to, to uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, big figure. Uh, big figure. Yes. Um, to, to him in the men's room, though. I, I I wish I could have seen that. The the prison break scene is excellent, and I agree that it shows Rorschach at his best. I mean, both in being a vicious bastard and in being extremely witty in a Bond way. Um, although I'll deviate from you a little bit on the bathroom scene. Uh, we've seen Rorschach kill people in so many creative ways that by this point, it's easier to imagine and more fun to imagine what he might have done to Big Figure. This is another point where the ambiguity of Watchmen really works in its favor. Because anything that we might imagine that happened in that room might honestly be worse than any method that the comics might have shown. It comes across as a very Hitchcockian move, which is something I can respect. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I can totally see that. You know, in, in the before Watchmen books, um, Hollis Mason committed some terrible sin and, and it had eaten at him for years. Uh, the before Watchmen story paints a picture of depression with Hollis Mason. Well, I, I only bring that up because it, when the Not Top Gang is coming to beat Hollis to death, the narrative from the Tales of the Black Freighter comic read, Accustomed to a miserable, shifting landscape of iron and green, uh, my mind could not at first grasp the meaning of this sandbar, blonde and solid. It meant my lurching journey through darkness was ended. It meant that I had reached my destination. In, in my head, that speaks of a hard life with, an above, with above average struggles and a, and a long carried sadness, all coming to an end in a way that doesn't seem uh, like the bright glory of salvation, of course, like the, like the sandbar did. Uh, but in the end, it, it is, is in fact a good thing out of a terrible event. Right. And this is another reason why I like the Black Freighter as a metaphor for death. Death follows the sailor constantly. And usually when the freighter shows up in the story, a death tends to follow. In this case, it's uh, the death of Hollis Mason. So it really makes sense uh, to weave in the pirate story along with the main narrative. As an aside, did you notice that at the beginning of the issue, the kids are dressed as pirates and devils? Um, at first, you might think that it's a subtle nod to EC style comics, and, and it is, and it's clever. But it's actually good foreshadowing to Hollis Mason's death at the end of the issue. Um, I also really like the way that Hollis's death was shown in the issue. Even though the reality of his death comes across as a random street killing, it's framed from the lens of Hollis's nostalgia. So he goes out as the hero that he was with his dog dressed up as a sidekick. 
Like Ace the Bad Hound. I, I love that. The reality, of course, is that the death is completely senseless as Hollis is killed by a bunch of thugs who wanted to get back a Dan Driver because of the Princeton break. It's a senseless, pointless death wrapped up in nostalgia, once again hitting at the bleak nihilism of this world. All right. All right. It seems like we've covered that pretty well. Um, let me move on to Dr. Manhattan in this issue. I have to admit that I was not sure I understood what John was doing by coming back. I mean, he, know, he knows what's going to happen. Why start all of that shit by leaving just to have Lori talk you into helping again? Uh, but I think I have an answer for that. Let's not forget that John Osterman started out as a watchmaker. Granted, this came up from from the before Watchmen story, Dr. Manhattan, but I think he clears some things up here. Um, he appreciated all of the little intricacies in the clockworks, the symmetry, uh, order, and control. Uh, one gear turns. It turns another, which turns another. But it all starts with the one tick of the clock, the uncoiling of the spring, the first gear whose turning set everything else in motion. I think that John saw an ending that was satisfactory to him, and he had to be the tick of the clock that started the first gear turning. I, I think that the giant clockwork structure he built on Mars with the 12 points around it, just like a clock that he said already existed in the sands before he made it, is a monument to this revelation for him. That could very well be possible, um, but this goes again to how John is pretty much an all-powerful being with little agency. When Laurie mentions how John showing up show, comes off as a deus ex machina, John seems to agree with it in a sense, um, though and it leaves out his perspective. It could be that John goes to Dan's place to talk to Laurie because that is what he must happen uh, for things to turn out the way that it does. Uh, some of it seems to be more acknowledging that the conversation is for plot purposes, and some of it is John generally being a puppet of the universe who has to go through certain motions. You could even argue that John is the puppet of the writer who needs to carry out certain story beats for the plot to work as intended. Hmm. I, I got to say that last bit is just a little too meta for me. <laughs> but, but I can certainly see what you're talking about. Um, as one last quick side note before issue number nine, I have to say that the new frontiersman is definitely a disreputable rag that it, that it identifies with a lot of hate groups and wild and crazy conspiracy theories. Uh, one that caught my eye in particular was the United States article they were putting in their paper. Uh, the, and despite what their publisher might say to the contrary, it, it most certainly does paint a tainted picture of both their magazine and Rorschach for reading it. Not only did they find a copy of the new Frontiersman in his apartment, Walter was regularly bugging the news vendor about holding on to the latest edition of the magazine. You have to wonder how much of that hate-filled rag was an influence on Rorschach's perceptions. Uh, like, maybe it was not just his upbringing or the time that, it, at that in that radicalized church with the psycho reverend. And honestly, that explains why, despite Rorschach being right about the mass killer, people were reluctant to believe in him. Daniel Dryberg seems embarrassed or, or reluctant to even admit out loud that Rorschach might be right to Lori. I don't know about you, but that makes me think Rorschach is a full-on conspiracy nut, which means that what he says is taken with a grain of salt, and it really, it's kind of a bit of humoring him. Yeah, it, it is. He definitely is a conspiracy nut, and he buys into a lot of really stupid and hateful ideas. We are not supposed to like Rorschach or identify with his beliefs, as we talked about before. The New Frontiersman is likely supposed to be a piss take on right-wing publications like National Review, though I consider them to be closer to some of the really fringe right-wing blogs that spew conspiracy nonsense. Still, what I find really interesting is that there is truth very uh, deep within the New Frontiersman if you look really hard. 
I went through the end segment um, featuring the New Frontiersmen, and while the the lead story is right-wing conspiracy nonsense, the Crank File section on the last page or two has some genuinely interesting details on Max Shea and the people who disappeared at Vice Island. Mind, I am not defending Rorschach, who I think did buy into the conspiracy craziness, but the Crank File material is clearly the best part of the entire rack. <laughs> but speaking of buried truths, uh, why don't we get into the big reveals of the next issue? That's actually that's actually uh, pretty decent. I like that. Um, that that, but but yeah, let let's get into that. That sounds like a good idea. Um, in issue number nine, we see a bottle of Bites nostalgia perfume, seemingly spinning through space, and the perfume is spilling out of the top of the bottle as it spins. In the caption of this panel, well, when we first see it, we read the word. Uh, John says, "Lori." Uh, we see the same bottle spinning again, and John transports Lori to Mars, and she can't breathe in the atmosphere and, and tumbles down a hill as she struggles to breathe. John said making it so she could breathe just slipped his mind. The next time we see it, uh, the spinning bottle of nostalgia perfume is accompanied by the word fragile. This happened while she was remembering a memory from her childhood where her parents were arguing and discovered a really cool snowball. Uh, to her, it was a magical escape to somewhere else. Then her father discovers her and decides to take out his frustration on her. Even her mom defended her and said that she's just a kid, a, a vulnerable and fragile little girl. Right after this, the snow globe that Lori was looking at, her escape to somewhere else shattered on the ground because of her father. The next time we see the nostalgia bottle, uh, Byron's glass falls out of his lap and shatters on the floor. And he says, I'm sorry. Uh, I I'm sorry for us all. He seemed feeble and, and not altogether well. And Lori was even asking if that's what she had to look forward to if she became a superhero. The next time we see the spinning bottle pouring out of the perfume contained within it, it is when Lori first met her father, Edward Blake. And he her, her mother told her all about what had happened with the rape in 1940. We see the bottle again when Lori threw her drink in Blake's face and confronted him about beating and attempting to rape her mother. This episode is about shattering illusions and ripping away the rose-colored glasses. I don't know for sure uh, exactly if it's the same bottle or what, but Rorschach was mentioned as having a bottle of Bites nostalgia on him when he was arrested. Uh, my guess is that Rorschach got it from Dan Dryberg's house. So I don't know if the bottle that was in the bathroom was the same one or if Lori had her own perfume that she was using. Still, it is notable that all three tend to have nostalgia on their minds up until the point where the issue starts. I should also add that Moore's handling of nostalgia is a commentary on the superhero genre in general. Moore sees superheroes as very much a childhood thing, and it probably was for Moore as well. So I think the idea is that Laurie is maturing in her viewpoint by stripping away the comforting illusions of childhood. Hmm. You, you know, nostalgia is really a, it's a tricky thing. The dictionary defines it as a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past. I can look back at times in my life that were generally horrible with those rose-colored glasses because of nostalgia. Nostalgia allows us to encapsulate the good memories and focus on those moments rather than incorporate the bad things that were happening into it. I think that this is what uh, Sally Jupiter did with her past. She isolated those precious moments and focused on them like a microscope and dimmed the light on all the other stuff. I think that the spinning bottle of nostalgia pouring out the, all the perfume in the bottle is is the encapsulated precious moments that are all being mixed with the truth and horrors of the time, tainting our precious memories. 
All the nostalgia perfume and that, that sentimental longing just pours right out onto the floor. Uh, what little was left of that bottle was shattered on the floor when Lori threw the bottle, or rather her nostalgia, to the ground. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Lori destroying the nostalgia bottle after revisiting her past is very much a rejection of those rose-tinted memories and her old way of viewing them. Uh, for her, it's all tainted because of who Edward Blake was, what her mother did, and Lori's realization about who her true father was. The, the destruction of the bottle is a symbolic representation of Lori shattering her old illusions and her old way of viewing the world. Nice. Uh, it seems like we're, we're more or less landing on the same page with Watchmen, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Lori says that she thinks her dad hated her because he knew that she was not his. She goes on to say that she believes her real father was her mom's old boyfriend, Hooded Justice. First off, we know that her father was Edward Blake, a.k.a. the comedian, and that he and Sally, despite the attempted rape, had consensual sex in 1948, thus conceiving Lori Uh But from Lori's perspective at that point, she doesn't have that information. We do know from under the hood that Hooded Justice never seemed interested in Sally Jupiter, never even tried to kiss her. So I'm not sure where Lori got this impression, other than maybe her mom told her that or it was a fantasy of hers as a child. Uh, I've heard of many occasions where a child dreams of having different parents. Hmm, that's not impossible. Though it could be that as far as Lori knew, it was a real relationship. I mean, even if it was all arranged by Schneck-Snyder, they could have uh, done a good job of selling it in front of Lori. Sally may even have encouraged it. Um, it. It could be that Lori wanted to believe that her father was a hero instead of the man that she most hated. So she rewrote reality in her head to justify that belief. <laughs> Uh, that certainly makes sense, and I can understand wanting to pretend or even believe that her father was anyone else besides Edward Blake. Uh, but speaking of Lori, I'd like to talk about her interaction with John there on Mars. It would seem that John did somehow have an attachment to Lori. Um, I wouldn't call it love, and, and her wants and needs often don't even occur to him. Uh, even even that she should, she needed to breathe on Mars uh, just it escaped him. He didn't even consider it. But yet she remained his one link to the world as the rest of him was so detached. When he left the world, he didn't say that it was because of the claims that he had given many people cancer, but rather that Lori left him and cut off the link that he and she had and therefore his last remaining concern for the world. At the same time, now that it was gone, it was gone. Then he just changed his mind because of the miracle of Lori being born out of the chaos of her roots was like a, th a thermodynamic th miracle, like turning air into gold, as was the birth of all humans. Because he could relate to a scientific concept, it somehow validated humanity. That kind of taps into what I was talking about earlier with him. It's all mathematics to John. Equations of probability and possibility folding into reality because they are observed. John finally observed Lori. But I don't mean he looked at her. I mean it like when one of the Navi says it in, in Avatar. John saw into her. For the first time, he really saw her for who she was deep inside, and that revealed a miracle. Yeah. It, it's clear that Lori meant something to, to him, and even if it's uh, difficult to quantify. It could be that she was harder to predict and understand for him, and that made Lori an interesting challenge to try to figure out. It could also be that when he met her, he still had some vestiges of humanity left, so there was an emotional attachment at that time. Then again, uh, John exists out of sequence, and he doesn't live in a direct moment-to-moment -moment way like normal people do, so who honestly knows? 
<laughs> it, it's just another talking point built into the comic, honestly. Uh, there yeah. are ambiguous things in this story, and they are there, so we will do exactly what we're doing now, talking about it and analyzing it. Uh, but let's move on to issue number 10. Sounds like a plan. Uh, one scene that struck with me with issue 10 is the moment where Rorschach confronts the landlady that lied about him. He starts off being threatening, demanding to know how much Pyramid paid her to slander his reputation, <laughs> such as it is. Um, but then uh, she asks uh, Rorschach to think of her kids because they didn't know what she had done. Rorschach uh, then um, does something that's a bit surprising. He lays off of her. Uh, he takes what he needs from his old room and then he leaves with Dan. Um, I, I suspect that Rorschach identified with the kid, uh, being reminded of himself and his own mother, and he decided to spare the landlady for the kid's sake. But what was your take on that scene, Mike? That was actually exactly my take as well. Um, I think that bringing up her kids gave Walter a reminder of his childhood and sparked that very rare sense of empathy in Rorschach. And speaking of empathy, uh, you know that you've gone too far when Rorschach is pulling you back. <laughs> yeah. Dan Daniel, or rather uh, 9L2, uh, ran into that not-top gangbanger after they had beaten Hollis Mason and then smashed in his head with that trophy, and Dan was pissed. In front of a whole room full of people, he told the gangbanger, you tell them, you tell them they're dead. You know how much firepower I have floating out there? I ought to take out this entire rat hole neighborhood. I ought to break your neck. This time... Rorschach is the one with some restraint and tells Nidal 2 that he can't do this in front of civilians. And they got the information they were looking for. Uh, but Dan was working himself up and would have killed that guy if Rorschach hadn't stopped him. That, that's my opinion anyway. When he was sitting there like, God damn it. God damn it. He, he was totally just building up the anger in him. It's all a part of that no future attitude. What does anything matter if we're all going to be dead tomorrow? Sure, he was close to Hollis, real close. And it hurt to hear the news of his death. I'm not denying Daniel's pain. Just that if circumstances were a little different, he might have at least been smarter about it. Yeah, that's fair. This issue does a fair amount of role reversal between Dan and Rorschach, and it all really works. It's usually Dan holding Rorschach back, as you mentioned, but in this issue, it's Rorschach showing mercy and Dan who wants to spill blood. Not that I blame Dan in this case, and it's possible that Dan also feels responsible for Hollis's death, too, and he's taking that out into the thugs. He's clearly not thinking straight at this moment, wrapped up in pain and shock and not looking at this with a clear perspective. But I, I love this friendship, and I love how both characters grow in opposite directions. <laughs> Just say that to yourself. Rorschach was seeing things more clearly than Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I think... Happen. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the fact that Rorschach was seeing anything clearly does not often happen. But <laughs> honestly, I think this moment actually brought Dan and Rorschach closer together. Being Daniel's friend has had an effect on Rorschach. I mean, Rorschach apologizes to all of one person in the entire story, and that is Dan. What's more is... Rorschach acknowledges the difficulties of being his friend. Like you said, the tables are turned here, but I think carrying this over from the empathy Rorschach was able to have with his landlady, that perhaps Rorschach's friendship with Nidal too had an effect on him to the extent that he was able to pull Dan back from the brink. I, I saw that as a bonding moment, actually. It, it is. They grow together in the long run. But uh, let's move on to the big reveal. I think most people know the spoiler on this one, and we've already uh, discussed it a few times, but I wanted to hold back in case there was any of our listeners who haven't read this book. And if you're one of those people, go read the book now. We'll be back when you're done. We, we promise. Um, 
anyway, it's clear at this point that Adrian Veidt was the one who murdered Blake all along. Uh, Dan and Rorschach finally put everything together once they've reached Veidt's office and Lund like Veidt's his computer files. It is kind of funny that while the normally stoic uh, Rorschach is muttering out loud, it's Dan who's being quiet as he breaks into the computer. <laughs> um, the, now, the reveal makes total sense in retrospect, which is what a good mystery should do. And I admit I was thrown out of it first, but by the time I first read this, I was still young and I hadn't figured out the conventions. But looking at it now, I mean, Moore does a good job of misdirecting. The thing that really sells this is the fake attempt to fill, kill Vite, which was a complete misdirect. Probably what happened was that Vite hired his own assassin, and Vite stuffed the cyanide capsule in the assassin's mouth to silence him. Uh, we also find out in this issue that Vite killed the artists and the writers on the island as well, probably to keep them quiet. Uh, it ended up paradoxically leading Rorschach and Night Owl straight to him because they were able to trace the assassin's associate before Vite could silence him too. Veidt does think things through well, sometimes even brilliantly, but we see that he doesn't always get everything exactly right. Anyway, Mike, uh, what did you think of the reveal, and did you find the mystery satisfying? I did find it quite satisfying, actually. All of the pieces fell together on their own, and they were not forced on us. They There have been many times uh, that things had to be rewritten or reworked uh, to reveal the master stroke of the villain. And this did not. If you go back to that scene where Vite takes out the assassin, it is small, but you can clearly see him putting a cyanide capsule in his mouth. Uh, the ducks all line up in a row and, and I love it. Uh, but I have to comment on Rorschach's state of mind going into that final confrontation with Adrian Vite. So Rorschach knew going into this that he was going to die. He sent out his journal before they ever went out. Listening to him break down everything to Night Owl 2 makes me wonder if he did not know that John was going to kill him. Uh, that neither one of them would have had a choice. Rorschach was going to act without question. If John wanted to stop him, he would have to kill him, and John knew it. He finally figured out who he was supposed to kill in the snow. Yeah, by that point, yeah. Um, though I think Rorschach was convinced that Ozymandias would probably kill him and Dan. Uh, and considering that Byte can do crazy warrior monk type of martial arts, like catching bullets, uh, Rorschach is not wrong to believe that. Um, I don't think that he expected going in that John might kill him, but I think um, Rorschach believed that he was up against an enemy too dangerous for him and Night Owl to handle on their own. So sending out the journal was an insurance policy preparing for the inevitable. Uh, that that makes sense too, I suppose. I, I don't. I, I guess I don't think that Rorschach knew that it would be John, uh, based on what you said there. But right. I, I definitely think he planned to die. Uh, but let's get into issue number 11. As Adrian Byte walked away from the monitors, I couldn't help but notice the large painting of Alexander the Great cutting the Gordian knot. The legend, and even some ancient historians, will tell you that many had tried to untie the Gordian knot, but it was made up of a series of intricate knots tied together in such a way that no one could discern which was which and where to begin. I think in this particular scenario, that knot might just represent the Cold War and the growing tensions with Russia and their advancement into Afghanistan. Nobody could see an end to it or how to solve it, just like nobody could figure out the Gordian knot. But like Alexander, Adrian Byte too had thought outside the box and came up with a solution that would unravel the knot just like Alexander's sword. It would seem that Adrian Byte imagines the same kind of thing when he looks at the painting he referenced to the nuclear uh, problem as the Gordian knot and to himself as Alexander. Yeah. Now, since you mentioned the Gordian knot, let me run this past you. If you pay attention to the locksmiths that are always going into Dan Dryberg's house to fix the door, uh, look at the name of the company. 
The company is called Gordian Knot. Um, while it's not spelled out, let's just say that I wouldn't be shocked at all if Gordian Knot is another one of those shell companies owned by Adrian Veidt. Veidt likes to use subsidiary companies with names rooted in ancient history or myths, so it would make a certain amount of sense. <laughs> I did catch that, and I think you're probably right. I mean, who the hell else is going to name their locksmith company Gordian Knot? <laughs> I can't think of anybody. <laughs> but um, I just love the ongoing little threads like that. An intriguing point yeah. I'd forgotten until rereading Watchmen is that Ozymandias had been trailing the hill or hooded justice. It turns out that the comedian was the agent assigned to investigate the case. It seems that Veidt was suspicious of Blake uh, as well, but he had no evidence to really confirm anything. The fact that Blake was in a position to cover his tracks adds some credence to the Blake killed Mueller theory that, that I've had for a long time. Uh, regardless, Veidt had never much liked Blake, though he, never, he did hold him some regard. Anyway, this connects the dots with the points on Hooded Justice's death that I brought up earlier. Did you have any thoughts on it, Mike? If you're asking me uh, if I think the comedian killed Hooded Justice, then I have to agree with that theory. Not only did Blank threaten Hooded Justice after H.J. beat comedian's ass by telling him that he had H.J.'s number, uh, but the comedian was, in fact, a government assassin. I mean, he killed JFK, for Christ's sake. Uh, Hooded Justice would not get in line with what the Keenak demanded of him, and it makes perfect sense that they would send Blake to kill him. Uh, what's more is that Rolf Mueller uh, and his family were Germans in fear of being discovered during the communist witch hunts of the 40s and 50s. Mueller quit his job at the height of the Senate subcommittee hearing on the un-American activities. Three months later, a badly decomposed body was washed up on the coast of Boston, as identified as Mueller that was shot through the head. That paints a picture in my mind of Mueller being taken out into the ocean, well away from the land, and Blake putting a bullet in his head. That would explain the decomposition. Could it have been Mueller's own red superiors that killed him? It's possible, but I think the Blake is, is a much more likely theory. Yeah, uh, so cool. Uh, we're on the same page with that. The next uh, point worth addressing is what do we actually think of Ozymandias' goal and his actual plan? Vice's uh, desire for a united world is an interesting goal, and I've always been a fan of ideologically driven villains. It should also be said that he's extremely competent, enough so that um, Night Owl and Rorschach are outmatched at every turn, even though he's outnumbered. At the same time, uh, Alan Moore admitted that his biggest problem with the story is the execution of the plan. Not in terms of basic principle, it should be said. It is true that a common threat will often unite people that it might otherwise never cooperate. It's a specific that um, I have my doubts about. The idea of engineering a creature and then teleporting it to New York as a way of fooling the world uh, to, into thinking that it's an alien invasion seems a bit far-fetched. Um, Moore admitted that, the, that this was inspired by an episode of The Outer Limits, and there's even a small nod to that into the text. Even so, um, I think the story works well enough as it stands that I'm not going to worry too much on that point. But what was your take on the plan and its execution, Mike? Uh, do you see a way it could have been improved on? I, I don't, honestly. I, I think the idea of an imminent alien invasion might have just been the one thing that could work to finally get people focused on Earth's survival and not just their own country's survival. It was suddenly about all of them potentially dying, and I don't see another way that could have convinced everyone. Uh, I personally don't believe in aliens, but a giant Lovecraftian creature appearing in the middle of New York might just get me to reconsider that. <laughs> was it was it psychotic and reflective of how on the fringes Adrian Veidt was? Absolutely. Uh, but it actually worked in the comic. Russia backed out of Afghanistan, and there were talks of putting aside the Cold War in favor of Earth's defense. 
yeah, this is ultimately why I have a hard time with alternate versions of Byte's plan, especially in the movie. It's not completely airtight, but it's good enough to work with the story as written, and there's not a perfect version that you can really point to. But why don't we get into the aftermath of New York's destruction? Uh, I would love to. Uh, looking at the destruction in those first uh, six pages of issue 12 is interesting. Amidst the carnage, we see a one-way sign uh, with the end of it twisted and bent. Uh, next, we see a theater showing the day the earth stood still. Then on that fourth page, we see that newspaper with the Vite method written on it. <laughs> yeah. The theater was referenced in the previous issue as well, so it was nice to see it in this scene. There was also a Tales of the Black Freighter comic floating around in one of the later pages. Uh, that hits the idea of the Black Freighter representing death. The time of impact was at midnight exactly, echoing the doomsday clock. Ah, good call on that. Um, it is interesting that the pale horse keeps showing up throughout the comic. The rider of the pale horse is death himself and hell follows him. Uh, the idea being that hell is swallowing up the dead that lie in the pale horse's wake. The pale horse is meant to represent uh, a corpse with its coloring. Uh, use it, he uses war and its great sword, nuclear weapons, famines and death, and the beast of the earth to kill a quarter of the population of the earth. This is what Byte is referring to when he says that uh, he saved the earth from hell. Uh, he put an end to the apocalypse and it prevented hell from swallowing them up. He basically killed the pale horse and its rider, Death. Yeah, that's a really good call. I agree, agree with all of that. Though it's interesting that you see uh, Pale Horse posters um, all over throughout the series in the background. On top of that, Pale Horse was, a, was scheduled to appear with another band called Crystal Knock. For those who don't know, Crystal Knock was the Night of the Broken Glass, where the Nazis incited a violent riot against the Jews following the death of a German diplomat. It was a key incident that led to Hitler and the Nazis assuming total power in Germany. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. I did not know that. And actually, I was kind of wondering about the crystal knock thing. Uh, that, that is very interesting. Uh, but let me switch over to another observation. You know, I had talked about how I can respect and admire unwavering belief and faith, even if I don't agree with it uh, in our Moon Knight episode. And, and I have to say that I respect and admire Rorschach's iron beliefs. Uh, not 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 even in the face of Armageddon and knowingly at the cost of his own life, tears pouring down from his face uh, as he faced death. He would not waver from what he believed to be right. Rorschach is the most messed up person out of the Watchmen. I mean, I cannot get behind 99% of Rorschach's beliefs because they are morally reprehensible or just out there farther than I can go. But out of all of the Watchmen, he was the one uncompromising member of the team. Uh, there was nothing, regardless of the scale, that could get Rorschach to go against what he believed to be right. Everyone else had done that at one time or another. Think about Adrian Veidt. Daniel Dreiberg could not believe that Veidt, a pacifist and considered a, a, a good man by most, would in fact have killed half of New York or any of the things that he had done to accomplish that. The best among them is a mass murderer and a diabolical pragmatic schemer. <laughs> Rorschach was a straight-up serial killer, a bigot and more. But there was that one redeeming quality his uncompromisable belief. I wonder what Moore was trying to say with this seeming contradiction in terms. Uh, any idea on that, Steve? Um, I think Rorschach is the way he is because Alan Moore is an equally uncompromising person. Uh, Moore is a completely unwavering when it comes to his artistic vision, and that is the only thing he has in common with Rorschach. Uh, Moore has absolutely no sympathy for any of the flaws that you cited, and I don't either. 
He was not intended to be likable, but he's a character that nevertheless fascinates people despite that intention. And I think the reason why Rorschach has become a popular character and why he still fascinates people to this day is because of that one admiral trait. He refuses to compromise, not even in the face of Armageddon. Never compromise. Um, I think Moore put that one bit of himself that he could respect, his refusal to compromise on his beliefs, and that made Rorschach as strong, as compelling as he is. Some characters are so powerful and charismatic that you just can't ignore them, and that's Rorschach. I think that Moore wanted to create a world where the characters were largely gray and very complicated, and Rorschach ended up being the epitome of that. So you get a character that nobody should like on paper, like at all. But because of that one redeeming feature, he has transcended that role. I could certainly get behind that. I, I can see why a writer even would need to put at least one admirable trait into Rorschach. It, it would be hard to write him otherwise, I think. Uh, but let, let, let's talk about the conclusion of the story, Steve. Sounds good to me. Although the series ends on a satisfying note, it also ends ambiguously. The world has changed because of Veidt's actions, but there's also a fly in the ointment. Rorschach's journal arrives at the New Frontiersman office, and Godfrey's assistant is ordered to include something from the crank file, which also just includes uh, Rorschach's journal. We never know what happens after that, if the journal is published or not, or how the world might respond if they ever learn the truth. The, the story just ends there, and it's left to the reader to answer that question. While I wouldn't want every story to end this way, I, I thought this was the best way for Watchmen to end. And this is a major reason why I felt that Watchmen should end there, so that the readers can work out what actually happened for themselves. But I'm curious what uh, what you made of the ending, Mike. Uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. Uh, Byte had told Nidel and Rorschach that his new world would make uh, that their particular brand of superheroing redundant. And yet both Dan and Lori were talking about still doing it, but they were taking it in a new direction. I can't help but notice that Lori said she was going to carry a gun. This seems to suggest that perhaps they are planning on crime fighting like Rorschach was by killing the criminals. Also, <laughs> and, and th this part, I, I, I almost want to see this fight, honestly. <laughs> uh, Sally Jupiter gave Dan the Tijuana Bible with her in it and told Dan not to tell his wife. <laughs> How do you think Lori is going to respond to Dan owning, owning a new drawing of her mother and keeping it a secret? <laughs> As for Rorschach's journal, I was pretty sure that Moore intended us to believe that the new frontiersman was going to print Rorschach's journal. They all but say it outright, in my opinion. With Rorschach sending it there uh, before he dies, and then the kid going over to the pile, I, I don't know how else to interpret that, honestly. Uh, Dan is really going to have to find a really safe place for the Iwana Bible, <laughs> is all I have to say. <laughs> I can't see Lori particularly taking that well. But then again, I think a lot of what they're doing with their crime fighting is about spicing up their relationship. As for the gun, I, I think it is a more practical in some ways, but it also signifies a darker turn for Lori. Still, I can't deny that it makes sense for a pulp-inspired heroine like Lori to carry a gun. It just kind of fits her archetype. <laughs> like Greg says, we don't kink shame here. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, 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 had, I, I had kind of forgotten about the whole kink thing with those two. I, I think you're actually onto something there. Uh, the gun would certainly up the stakes and the adrenaline. It does also make sense with the pulp connection uh, you're talking about there. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with that. Uh, but what about Rorschach's journal? As for Rorschach's journal being published, the ending certainly seems to imply that um, it's going to be published. Of course, who even knows if the journal would even be believed? The news frontiersman isn't taken seriously by most people, and on top of that, it would have been released as a crank file piece. 
we've already seen that a lot of true facts are buried under the lead, which is crazy conspiracy nonsense. That hides a lot of the real story. Plus, Rorschach isn't exactly stable himself, even if the journal was verified as his. So it's hard to say what the outcome would have been to that. So let's talk about the aftermath of Watchmen and what it inspired. There's no question that the original Watchmen series, along with The Dark Knight Returns, had a profound influence on comics that still affects the medium today. Watchmen casts a long shadow, even if it's a book that often is misunderstood, even by the creators who were influenced by it. As, many, as, as mentioned before, many of the writers and artists influenced by Watchmen only saw the surface elements and not the deeper, deeper themes or techniques. Um, I think that for a long time, Alan Moore ended up resenting the change in comics that he helped to spark. What Moore wanted Watchmen to do was to inspire other creators to learn from the book's techniques to inspire new, bold, and creative ideas. But what too many people took from it, from comics creators to filmmakers, is grimdark and edgy is cool, and they missed the deeper ideas that Moore was trying to convey. This ended up weighing on Moore over the years, and after a while, I think he just grew tired of it all. Honestly, I, I don't entirely blame him for feeling that way. I, I think I would grow tired of it, too, if everyone was trying to copy something I wrote uh, decades ago instead of doing something genuinely new and different. Uh, to be fair, there were people who got what he was doing and ran with it, though. Watchmen eventually inspired a later counter-movement against deconstruction in the late 90s, and that is uh, what's called Reconstructionism. Probably the best-known Reconstructionist writers of that period and, and now are Kurt Busiek and Mark Wade. Anyway, Busiek thought that while it was okay to question this Texas narrative structure and find things that don't make sense, his idea was that the writer should find answers that make the story work better. The idea is to build a better foundation by questioning and examining the tropes and then coming up with a solution to them. He likened it to a mechanic taking a car apart to seeing how it works and then putting the car back together to make it run better. At, the, at this time, uh, Moore had uh, serious regrets about his earlier works inspired, and he wanted to write something more fun and positive um, as a counterbalance. That led him to writing Supreme, where he did a more Silver Age Superman-style approach to what was originally an evil Superman-type character. But Moore explained this by introducing an idea called the Supremacy, establishing that Supreme goes through regular reboots and resets with many different versions of him. So even though it was written with tongue planted firmly in cheek and almost as a borderline parody in some respects, uh, Moore's Supreme was a reconstruction of Superman in practice. And it was really, really well done. So well done, in fact, that Moore's Supreme did Superman better than the Superman books done at DC at the time. For at least a little while, Supreme even inspired a lighter period for comics, though that influence eventually faded and the grimdark eventually came back. Still, Moore would also build on Supreme's success with his later books, including Tom Strong, Prophetia, uh, Top Ten, and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Anyway, I mention all this because I feel like Moore's um, later rejection of deconstructionist writing and the legacy he built in the 80s doesn't get mentioned nearly enough when Watchmen is brought up, and it really needs to be part of that conversation. Uh, but what, was, what were your thoughts on all this, Mike? Um, what is the best way to proceed as a writer when what you inspire isn't what you intended, and did Moore find the best way of dealing with that? Well, I, I guess... I would simply accept that my intention would be misconstrued and that ultimately they didn't matter. I would just keep producing okay. work that I genuinely love doing and just let people do what they do. It is not in our hands to control such things. I know that I write the stories that I like to read and I, I do them how I wanted to do them. It, I, I make mistakes and I have victories as well, but ultimately I'd be going uh, with what makes me happy and content as a creator. Uh, not that one should not be aware of these things, but I do not think that trying to control the narrative is going to work. Uh, that That is... 
the thing about about art really uh regardless of the intent art is ultimately subject to the individual interpretation of the person viewing it uh perhaps he could voice his intention just to put it out there but it is not worth the self-destruction of, of anger and bitterness that holding grudges creates. I mean, do you want an example? Moore is a generally angry guy with a disgruntled disposition. Does that sound like a happy and contented guy? I don't think so. No, sadly, I don't think so either. I mean, Moore is a truly brilliant writer, and I respect his total dedication to his art. But what makes him these things also comes at a heavy cost. Still, I can't entirely complain in this case because some of my favorite Moore stories came out of his regret over what he unintentionally inspired. So in the end, you kind of have to take the good and the bad with, with the bad when it comes to Alan Moore. Anyway, this brings us to the end of our episode of Watchmen. This may be the most dense and complex work we've ever looked at, to the point where 12 issues gave us as much content to discuss as decades-long running series. I Go back and look at Moon Knight, X-Men, any of that. This is longer. <laughs> um, Watchmen stands alone in terms of storytelling in comics, both in how the book is written for the page and how well the art takes risks and experiments with the narrative. Many people look at Watchmen as the gold standard in terms of what comics can achieve. And while I think there are elements comics could move away from, where this story shines is in the technical mastery of the craft. These are points we can learn from, and I don't think there's a more teachable comic than this one. It's always fun taking these deep dives with Mike, especially on a challenging story like this one. Uh, Mike, did you have any final thoughts before we close out? Uh, one thought I, I want to leave our listeners with is that Watchmen is not a one-time read kind of book. Um, I'll be honest and say that I flat out did not get what I was seeing and reading my first time through. In fact, my very first attempt at reading it, I quit reading as soon as I got to the end of issue one and saw the prose section after the comic. <laughs> I hated the idea of five pages of prose after a comic. I did not pick up a graphic novel to read prose. <laughs> I could not make a connection between what I was reading in Under the Hood and what was going on in the comic. It didn't seem like it had anything to do with anything, especially the opening story. Um, it was not until further chapters in that book that I understood, but I still hated the prose. <laughs> Plus, I, I somehow missed all of the mastery of the page and the layers of storytelling going on. All in all, when I finished watching the first time, uh, I didn't see what all the hoopla was about. Uh, but then this episode came up and I read it another three times for this episode. And suddenly, like I just put on the glasses from They Live, I could see what everyone was raving about. Watchmen is a true masterpiece of the art form. All that to say, I hope you don't let first impressions of the book rob you from reading it several times because of that at least for me uh, that was the key to truly appreciating it also if you if you're gonna watch the movie i have to recommend the ultimate cut despite changing the ending uh most of that movie is pretty accurate yeah i generally like the movie as well aside from the change of the ending but you're absolutely right that the sheer depth of this book is what gives it its impact after all these years and i love how much of that depth you've picked up on this is definitely a book that rewards deep and multiple readings to get the most out of Anyway, uh, that's how all the time that we have for on this episode, so we'll go ahead and leave it here. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, and I hope that you'll catch all our other shows and content on the Omen Comics Podcast Network. Until next time, thank you for all your support, and thanks to all our listeners who make this podcast possible.